When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and for the first time in weeks, we're not going to be learning from Paul today. Now, I have mixed feelings about that because I love Paul, and hopefully the last few months with him has made that crystal clear. His emphasis on the grace of God through the gift of Jesus Christ is exactly what we need. And so I hope that we don't limit ourselves to our time with Paul just to these few months in Come Follow Me. I hope we go back often. I hope, if nothing else, we have overcome our fear of Paul. As Latter-day Saints, we know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really, really well. We know Acts pretty well, and then we kind of get lost in the letters of Paul. And I hope that our time going verse by verse and phrase by phrase has, has helped us overcome that, res that reticence. Uh, what he taught us is meant to be life-changing, and I hope that it has been for all of you. It has been for me. But with that in mind, we are leaving Paul behind and moving forward into what are known as the general epistles. Paul was much more specific, writing to congregations of saints in Rome or in Corinth or in Galatia, writing to specific individuals in Timothy or Titus or Philemon, speaking more generally to the Hebrews, but you want to go general, then move to these general epistles near the end of the New Testament. The one that James writes, which we'll study this week, the two that Peter writes, which we'll study next week, the three that John writes, which we'll study the week after that, together with the one that Jude writes, these are all called the general epistles because they are meant for a general audience. The entire church scattered abroad throughout the Roman Empire. If you're an ancient day saint, these words are for you. They're also sometimes called the Catholic epistles, but that's not Catholic as in Roman Catholic Church centered in Rome. This is Catholic lowercase c, which means universal. Originally, that's what the Catholic Church was, was meant by that title. We're, we're the universal church. And so these universal epistles, these general epistles are meant for everyone that, that, gets, that gets their eyes on them. And that includes us. So not just the ancient day saints, the, the latter day saints as well. And I hope that we are ready to embrace the doctrine that is taught here. And in fact, more than the doctrine, the practices that are preached here. For that, we need to understand a little bit of what's, what's behind this book of James. And we'll start with James himself, the man who wrote it. Now, this is usually the, the, the assumption, the automatic assumption on our part. When we think James, we think, oh, Peter, James, and John. And especially with these general epistles, we have one from James and two from Peter and three from John. So what? There you go. The original first presidency of sorts. But that's not the case with this particular James. The James, as in Peter, James, and John, was martyred by King Herod. We read that story back in Acts chapter 12. And after his passing, there is still another James that plays a pivotal role in the church, especially in Jerusalem. He's known as a pillar of the church there. And this James is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, if that doesn't give you connections, uh, I don't know what does. And so to, to listen to him, to hang on every word, this is someone that grew up in the same household. Now, there's pros and cons there. 
because as Jesus himself taught, no man is prophet in his own country. And if that's true of countrymen that think they know you too well, it's even more true within the same household. And as we saw several times in our study of the Gospels, Jesus' own half-siblings did not believe that he was the Son of God. They were a little too close to it all to be able to perceive that. The condescension of Christ was all too convincing to them. And so they grew up doubting. And yet at some point, at least some of them, at least James we know, fully converted to embrace the gospel that his half-brother had taught and to accept his true identity, knowing that I'm related to him, but there, there is a, an infinite difference, particularly in terms of who his, his father is. And so Jesus, as the Son of God, James has a, a powerful testimony of that. Now, the other thing that we need to be thinking here is James leading the church, particularly in Jerusalem. Peter's off on a mission. Paul's going off on missions. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, is this pillar of the Jerusalem church. He grew up as a Jew himself, as did his half-brother Jesus. And so most of the converts there in Jerusalem are Jewish Christians, Jewish converts, Messianic Jews, we could call them. And so this letter is going to address more of the issues that they're dealing with rather than the Gentile issues that Paul usually addressed. But again, this is a general epistle, so whether you're a Jewish convert or a Gentile convert or a Latter-day Saint convert, uh, these words apply to us all. And in some ways, it's the application of these words that James is most interested in. You see, after spending the last several months with Paul and Paul's incredible emphasis on grace, which is exactly what a Gentile audience is going to need to hear because they're coming in without the law of Moses. Uh, to the Jewish hearers of Paul, they need to be weaned off of their legalism. And so to be, to, well, let's put it this way. We talked about proving contraries repeatedly, right? And especially when we studied the book of Romans at the beginning, there's this sense of trying to balance the, the expectation of living the gospel as best as we can but realizing that we're not saved by that obedience. The, the works side of things is the wax on, wax off. We're not paying for our karate lessons. Those are the karate lessons in some ways. And what we're trying to accomplish is a reconciliation of our will to God so that we stop stiff-arming him when he's offering us his saving grace. And sure enough, it is his grace that saves us, not all we can do, okay? Now, because of of Paul's audience, he really emphasized grace because he needed to help pull his readers away from this strict observance of the law. Now, in, in James's case, one of the great things about this coming right on the heels of the Pauline epistles is it helps prove the contrary once again. I mean, Paul did it himself. I think sometimes we, uh, people tend to pit Paul against James, and that's not fair to either one of them. Uh, they would have been in the same quorum of the Twelve, if you want to put it that way. And to picture James agreeing with Paul and Paul agreeing with James, but coming at it from a different side of the spectrum based on the needs of their immediate audience. Okay, So if you're too much on the side of, wor of works or law, Paul is going to lean off that side of the deck of, this, of the good ship Zion to try to lean things, pull things back towards a balance between grace and works or grace and law. And just in case people were going to overcorrect, Paul kept saying, God forbid, every time we started to. Okay, Almost every God forbid statement we saw in the letters of Paul 
was to make sure that we corrected without overcorrecting. It was the bumper bowling. You with me? Well, James in another, in a, is another example of a God forbid statement. We get a whole letter of God forbid. Before you completely jettison works and think that they are unimportant, please remember the importance of orthopraxy right alongside orthodoxy. Now, ortho means straight, right? You orthopedic surgeons. And orthodoxy, the dox of doxy, is the dock of doctrine. So orthodoxy is right belief. But orthopraxy, the prax of praxy, is the prac of practice. And so the right behavior, right beliefs, right behaviors. And to see Paul really emphasize the doctrine and the doctrine of grace more than anything. And then to have James come in and say, Amen, Paul. Amen, I believe in everything you said. But can we let the rubber hit the road? Can we don't come down from the clouds and put our feet on the ground? And how are we actually going to live the gospel? That was one of James's great gifts. If you'll remember Acts chapter 15, our discussion of the Jerusalem conference, it was James that really helped iron out the, the wrinkles and, and forge the compromise bet between Jewish and Gentile Christians. And just what parts of the law of Moses do we still need to live versus those that were fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Uh, again, the, the pragmatism of a James was such a spiritual gift in that moment. Talk about knowing the diversities of operations and the differences of administration and how are we going to bring these two sides together into one great whole? Well, here's some, some practical wisdom that will help with that. And the book of James is chock full of practical wisdom. In fact, in some ways, that, those terms, uh, the practice and wisdom, defines this book. And to think of him growing up alongside Jesus and coming to fully embrace his half-brother's teachings, there is so much of the Sermon on the Mount that you'll recognize in the book of James. And so that's one influence that James is bringing in. The other he's calling upon is from the book of Proverbs, which based on his Jewish background, he would have, been, he would have grown up with that as well. And Proverbs is the great example of wisdom literature. So, for example, one of our favorite verses as Latter-day Saints, James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, ooh, the Proverbs will pop up in that moment. Do you know your Proverbs? Do you have these pithy one-liners, these wonderful statements? And James is full of wonderful pithy one-liners as well to try to help us gain the wisdom that can come from God. Okay? And so where is the rubber hitting the road? Where, how can I find this kind of wisdom in terms of how to live a Christ-like life, especially surrounded by a Roman empire that is largely hostile to that kind of life? How do I live like Zion here in Babylon? How can I follow Jesus Christ despite of a wicked world all around me? Sound relevant, my fellow Latter-day Saints? Oh, it, it definitely is. But one last thing to say before we dive in. If there's one person that oh, had a bone to pick with James, it would be Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, you remember his background, he was a monk within Catholicism. At the time, Catholicism was leaning too heavily toward works. Uh, and salvation through those works. And, and Martin Luther, when he read the book of Romans, it came like a, a lightning bolt that the just shall live by faith. And he realized that he'd been leaning too far in one direction. And so the emphasis on grace that, that 
defines the Protestant Reformation in some ways was the gift that Martin Luther brought to say, we've been too far on this extreme and it's not works that's going to save us. I tried to outmonk my fellow monks. It didn't work. Okay. So it's only by the grace of God that we can be saved. Now that's a beautiful correction. But as I've pointed out with proving contraries and the difficulty of staying within the Goldilocks zone, when we have been too far on one extreme for too long, rather than correct, we tend to overcorrect. And that's exactly what ended up happening with Martin Luther, where he was so burned by a sense of works righteousness and so almost traumatized by feeling he would never measure up that any time a whiff of works would enter his nose, it was, it was toxic to him. And so he tried to avoid that at all costs, including at the cost of the epistle of James. Because James is famous for saying that faith without works is dead. Now, he's not trying to deny grace or faith at all, but he's warning against those who have denied works. Keep them in proper perspective. Know what they're for, but they need to be part of things because that's where the rubber hits the road. That's how we show our life of faith. Okay? And so what Martin Luther did when he got to the book of James in his German translation of the Bible, he had to plug his nose and work his way through it. And, and all, again, this sense of, of being triggered almost by those kinds of words. And so he decided to move it to the back of his translation of the New Testament. He famously referred to it as an epistle of straw. Like, it's just straw. This, this is not the strong... The strong gospel rock that we should build on. For that, let's go to the book of Romans. This is just straw. Take it or leave it almost. And in some ways, he would have preferred to leave it. He chose to keep it in the, the canon because it had been in there so long. But for him, it was, it was too hard to read. He said he wished that it would be taken out of the curriculum at, at religious schools. Let's not study the book of James at all. He overstated the case by saying... I can't find a syllable about Jesus here. I mean, yes, he's mentioned two times, but his doctrine isn't being taught. And to that, James would say, are you kidding me? It's, it's where his doctrine hits the road. It's where his doxy turns into praxy. That's what I'm trying to help people navigate here. And so I hope we do see Jesus in page after page, especially in the Christ-like life that is meant to come as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so in some ways the placement is perfect. After all that we have learned doctrinally from Paul, James, can you come and help? Help me put my feet on the ground and decide how I'm supposed to live as a result of all of this. Okay, magnificent book. So James chapter 1, verse 1, we hear his name right off the bat. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, I said his name is right there at the start, but in some ways that actually isn't his name. James is the, Engli the anglicized, the English version of his actual name, which in Hebrew would have been Jacob. In some modern translations, this is even called the book of Jacob. Okay, so uh, the idea here is think of Jacob as such an Old Testament name. Remember, Jesus' Hebrew name was closer to Joshua, right? And so here you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And this Jacob, a.k.a. James, is writing to whom? To the twelve tribes scattered abroad. 
Now we know that those converts who come into the, into the church of Jesus Christ are also adopted into the house of Israel. Uh, Paul taught that to the Galatians, for example. But to see here the way James is addressing his audience, if, ja if James is Jacob and Jacob is Israel and Israel feels responsible for his 12 tribes, well, that's exactly the case here. And you get this sense of the scattering of Israel, the Jewish diaspora, all across the Roman Empire, right? Every time Paul would set foot in a new city, he'd go to a synagogue that was there. So there's Jews as far as the eyes can see. And these scattered remnants of the house of Israel, their Jacob, their father of the faith, James, is trying to gather them in to the gospel, to gospel living through their faith in gospel doctrine. In some ways, it's a, it's a magnificent beginning there. Just some hints, subtle hints that he's dropping to the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 2, he considers them his brethren. And so he calls them that. My brethren, and then how's this for right off the bat, when the rubber hits the road, how are we supposed to live? Well, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And the JST there says, into many afflictions. That's actually closer to the original Greek because the tricky part with Greek here is the word for trial and the word for temptation are the same. And you can it's only by context that you can tell, is this a trial meant to prove us and test us and help us grow? Those often come from God. Or is this a temptation that is intended to get us to trip and fall and move away from God? And those never come from God. Those always come from the adversary. We're going to see some more examples of that later on in this book. But here from the very beginning, when you struggle, when you suffer, when you face many afflictions, and if you're a Christian Jew or a Jewish Christian growing up in the Roman Empire, then yes, this is the story of your day-to-day -day life. When you're struggling and suffering, though, count it all joy. Rejoice. Be grateful for that. His half-brother Jesus said basically the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You're in good company. They persecuted prophets like that before you. So count it joy. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And the Greek word there could also mean endurance or steadfastness or perseverance. All of those trials and tests and tribulations can work that within you. In some ways, it's the gravity that works against the weight. It pulls it down on you, and it makes it hard. But then again, if you're weightlifting, <laughs> gravity becomes your friend because it provides the necessary resistance. I don't know how easy it would be to build muscles in outer space. Okay, So we need that opposition in all things. We need affliction so that we can work on patience. Okay. The trying of your faith worketh patience. And then this beautiful piece of advice. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And perfect is another word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of Matthew 5, be ye therefore perfect. Remember, it doesn't mean flawless. It doesn't mean sinless. It means full grown, fully developed. You've reached the end goal. Telios or teleos is the Greek term, and that's where we get telescope. It's so far off, but that's the ultimate destination. And as long as we put one foot in front of the other, as long as we continue coming into Christ, that's where, where he will eventually lead us, to be perfected in him.
And so how does that happen? Well, <laughs> slow and steady wins that race. The idea of, no wonder we have to face trials and tribulations all the time. It's what works patience in us. And patience is what will be required for us to ever reach that distant, telescopic goal. Okay? When you think of this, well, put it this way. Some things just take time. Did this ever cross your mind when you were impatient for dinner? And you looked at the recipe and you realized that this is going to take four hours. It's like kind of a slow roast sort of a thing. But it's like four hours at 200 degrees. Well, if we cranked it up to 400, does that mean it only takes two hours? If we cranked it up to 800 degrees, would it only take an hour? Is that how cooking works? And no, you can't just double the temperature and half the time because some things require time. There are certain aspects of Christian development that you cannot hurry through. You just can't rush. I had a friend once that said, you know, I'd probably go to the temple more often if the endowment didn't take so long. But to carve out two hours of my day, that's hard to do. And I remember thinking, speed up the endowment? It, it takes me two hours just to calm my brain down, my mind racing all over the place. You can't speed up mindfulness. You can't hurry and rush through meditation. It's, it's time. As Joseph Smith taught in Liberty Jail, that the things of God are of deep import and time and solemn thought are required to understand them. Of course that realization came in Liberty Jail, where Joseph had nothing but time and solemn thoughts on his, on his hands. Sometimes we do have to slow down. Sometimes we have to make time to be holy. Because as James puts it here, we have to let patience have her perfect work. One last example, I had a student, wonderful, amazing student, new convert to the church, on fire. And in some ways felt behind her lifelong member peers and just wanted to catch up as quickly as possible. And it frustrated her sometimes not to be exactly where she wanted to be already. And I remember this one conversation we had in my office, just a good heart to heart as she was just, but I'm not this and I'm not that yet and I want to be this and I see how you do this and why can't I do that? And I just laughed and I said, how old are you? I mean, I can say that to my students because they always have a good answer, right? They're young. <laughs> and she said, what, 22 or something. And I just laughed and I said, I'm more than double your age. And I certainly didn't have this perspective or this understanding or this patience when I was your age. You are way ahead of where I was at your age, believe me. But some things you'll never figure out because it takes time to learn them. So let patience have that perfect work. In verse 5, and this is the verse that we Latter-day Saints gravitate to because we know it so well. This is the verse that spurred the restoration. And he speaks of wisdom. A, a proverbial focus. If any of you lack wisdom, James says, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Now again, this grows out of the Sermon on the Mount from Big Brother also. Ask, and ye shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. 
This doesn't work in other languages, but in English, he's literally spelling out ask. A, ask, S, seek, K, knock. I can't make it any more clear. Elder Packer said that few commandments are given more repeatedly than that one. Please, ask of God. I wonder sometimes if that's why God leaves us with questions. Because he's hoping to initiate conversations. He wants us to come unto him. And so again, notice the promise. Take it word by word. If any of you, there's not some, this is not a promise designated for a select few. No, any, high, low, anything in between. Lifelong member, brand new convert, intelligent, someone who fears that they aren't intelligent enough. No, if any of you. And what are you lacking? Wisdom. He didn't say you're lacking faith or lacking integrity, or lacking worthiness. There's just something you don't know yet. And welcome to human reality. We all are born in a state of not just innocence, but ignorance. And we are waiting to to have truth poured into us. So often, all we're lacking is an understanding. And as soon as somebody takes the time to walk us through things, we can embrace those truths and begin acting on them. If any of you lack wisdom, that should not be a shaming statement. It describes us all, okay? So since all of you lack wisdom, he could have said, and that would have been just as true. But if any of you lack wisdom, my next three words are my favorite. Let him ask. Allow it. Permit someone to raise their hand and ask what people might consider a dumb question. There's never a dumb question. I had a student once that told me that his mission president said, if an investigator never asks you a question, then they're not really investigating. And I laughed at that saying, that describes a lot of dates I went on when I was your age. Uh, No interest. They were not investigating. They (laughs) They didn't ask anything about me. They were not interested at all. But to understand the the curiosity, the interest, the desire to learn, that's an incredible thing. It is not a sign of doubt. We, I worry sometimes that it, in church that we are so concerned about people's concerns that we stop them from asking questions. Afraid that a question, oh, maybe that is a, a doubt, and that doubt is a concern, and that doubt, that concern is apostasy, and apostasy is rebellion just waiting in the wings. And it's like, whoa, 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 I just... I just had a question, and if you could help me, then chances are the answer will keep that question from ever becoming those other things that you're so worried about. Oh, recently at the Restore Conference, I spoke about this concept of letting people ask, because I feel so strongly about that. Of course, here James is saying, let him ask of God, and that is the ultimate source. Ultimately, he's the one that we must all come unto for our answers. But I think especially among those who are struggling in their faith, God seems so distant. And sadly, fellow Latter-day Saints, fellow believers feel pretty distant too. I mean, after all, if you're surrounded by people and you only hear them ever say, I know, I know, I know, and you don't know, then I don't want to out myself as the ignoramus. I don't want to out myself as the doubter when it's not doubt that you're displaying. It's a desire to know more than you now do. So yes, let let him ask of God, ultimately. 
But along the way, please, can we be the reassuring conversation partners that will say to anyone who's wondering, you can ask me. Even if I don't know the answer yet, you can ask and we'll start moving forward. We did that every day as missionaries and we didn't feel like we had to know everything before we started to serve. No, when somebody would ask us a question that we didn't know, we'd be like, wow, thank you. I study the scriptures and the gospel an hour every morning, and some mornings I'm not exactly sure what I should study. Well, now I know exactly what I'm studying tomorrow. You mind if I dedicate tomorrow's personal scripture study to your question? Because I'd love to know it myself. Imagine how meaningful that would be to an investigator who realizes, wait, you're going to dedicate an hour of study for me? said, yeah, and that might only be the first hour if I still don't understand it. But of course, you're worth it. In fact, while I'm doing that hour of study, can I invite you to join me and you do some study on your own as well? Let's both ask of God and let's keep asking each other and let's figure this thing out together, shall we? And when you have someone willing to go on that journey with you, your crisis of faith, your struggle, or simply your spiritual journey no longer feels so lonely. So let him ask. In my own classes, I am constantly not only reassuring my students, but welcoming my students and inviting my students to come and ask me whatever is on their mind. If it's too personal to ask in a classroom setting, then my door is open to you. And I had one student text me once and said, thank you for inviting us to come talk to you about difficult questions or things we were struggling with, or answers we didn't yet have. Thank you for doing that often enough that I actually started to believe that you meant it. It can't be one of those stereotypical old home teacher visits where on their way out the door they're saying, hey, can we do anything for you? And then the door closes before they even hear an answer. No, we have to mean it. And again, it doesn't mean we have to know the answer. We just have to reassure them that they're welcome to ask their question. Okay? Now, speaking of reassurance, how does the Lord give it to all of us? Notice the next lines. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God and of anyone else along the way. And speaking of God, what does God do? He giveth to all men. Ooh, so now we're back up to that 100% threshold. Any of you lack wisdom? Come. Because God's going to give all of you, every single one of you, exactly what you need at the time. So he giveth to all men. And what's he give them? He gives them liberally, first of all, which is a word that in some Latter-day Saint circles is almost anathema. But here, no, God is a liberal, at least when it, when it comes to giving us wisdom. He does it generously, graciously, overabundantly. He wants us to know. Yes, it will be line upon line and precept upon precept. I think it was Emily Dickinson who said it, that the truth must dazzle gradually lest every man be blind. Uh, and Elder Maxwell built on that and said, who better than the light of the world to know just how much light to shine, whether it's a flashlight or a spotlight. And so when will he give it? That's up to him. But will he give it? Yes, liberally. And not only that, but he will not upbraid. That's such a great phrase as well. The Greek word there for upbraid could mean revile or insult or reproach or mock or blame or shame or see somebody as guilty and therefore deserving of punishment. 
in this case is like, oh, you don't even know that answer, then, or that question, then you don't deserve the answer. That's not God. He doesn't slap us on the wrist. He doesn't shame us or look like, really? Were you not paying attention in class? No, you have a desire to learn. Bless you for raising your hand and asking. I will not upbraid you. When all is said and done, instead, I will give you exactly what you need. That's the promise of James 1.5. No wonder it spurred the restoration. In fact, if you go back to Joseph Smith history and understand the experience young Joseph had with his verse, Mother Smith said of all her children, Joseph was the least inclined to book study, but the most inclined to deep thought. And so picture him not pouring over the Bible, starting in Genesis, and I'm going to find my answer here eventually, eventually, and wow, great. At the very end of the Bible, in the book of James, I finally get a clue. No, he may have been just jumping around. It's actually likely that he may have heard a sermon at probably a Methodist church or maybe a Presbyterian one in which the, the, the pastor, the preacher, quoted James 1, 5. Anyway, however it came, it it struck the young boy, and he couldn't stop thinking about it. The way he described his experience, this is Joseph Smith History 1, verse 12. Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did, for how to act and remember, that's James's great gift. It's rubber hitting the road. It's how to act in things. How to act, I did not know. And unless I could get more wisdom, and again, that's what James is trying to offer, like the Proverbs, I, if I can't get more wisdom than I then had, Joseph said, then I would never know. Am I content to remain in ignorance? Well, not on these issues. This is eternal life I'm wondering about. And so if the answers have to come from God, then so be it. I'll go to God. He sounds willing to respond. In fact, the way it's there, the, the fact it would hit him so hard in the heart and that he would reflect on it so many times in the mind. Remember what section 8 says? I speak to people by the spirit of revelation. And he defines revelation as thoughts in the mind and feelings in the heart. Joseph's experience here is textbook revelation. And to picture a James revealing to this Joseph, the answer won't come from people like me. The answer will come from above. So look up. It was with that in mind that verse 13 follows from Joseph Smith history. Joseph says, at length, so it took him a while to muster the courage, but at length I came to the conclusion that I must either remain in darkness and confusion or else I must do as James directs, that is, ask of God. And those really are our options. There really isn't much more than that. You want to stay where you are, or do you want to come unto God and get the help that you need? Well, I at length came to the determination to ask of God. But notice what nudged him in that direction. He said, concluding that if he gave wisdom to them that lacked wisdom, and would give liberally, and not upbraid. You see what he just did? He's walking you through phrase by phrase, James 1.5. Is that really true? Will he really give wisdom to those that lack it? Will he really give liberally 
And do you promise he won't upbraid? Because if all those ifs are true, then I might venture. I love those last three words. I might venture. I'm going to give it a shot. Do you get a sense of risk inherent in that phrase? Here's Joseph. I don't know if he'd been made fun of at, at school, the few days he was ever able to attend. Was he ever mocked or upbraided because of his ignorance? Third grade education, even though you're 14 years old, and come on, you should know better than that. It's, there's confusion all around him, but is there a hesitance on his part? I can't ask. I'll be made fun of. But to get that reassurance from James... If God's really like that, then it's worth the risk. In fact, maybe it's no risk at all. I have had lots of people over the years complain, saying, ah, the, the church is not a welcoming place for questions. You just can't ask them. And that is tragic to me. On the one hand, I, I want to say, that's not true. You can ask anytime you want. But on the other hand, to whatever degree it is true, then shame on us if we're the ones giving off that kind of impression. Now, granted, sometimes it's a matter of who do I ask or in what venue do I ask? And that can be tricky in a lay church, right? Where we're all just doing the best we can. And when it's like, well, should I ask my questions in gospel doctrine? You poor gospel doctrine teachers out there are probably going, like, no, I don't know all those answers. Well, again, whether it's public or personal, private, whatever it might be, we better offer somebody or we better offer everybody at least some connection to asking. But the thing I often will hear in response to that complaint, you can't ask questions at the church, at church or, or Mormonism, so-called, is, is against questioning. I've often heard people say in response, what are you talking about? The restoration began with a question. That's Joseph Smith going out to the sacred grove. Which of all these churches is true? Which should I join? Others have said, look at the Doctrine and Covenants. And practically every one of these revelations comes as a response to an actual question from an actual person. God loves questions. And so the, the, we're, not, we're not hostile to questions or questioners. That's how it all began. Now, I love that answer. I believe in it. But can I push back just a little bit? Because based on what Joseph Smith described from his experience with James 1.5, the restoration did not begin with a question. Take one step backward. The restoration began with the reassurance that questions are welcome. That's what started it all. That's what encouraged, assured this young, hesitant boy, I can actually ask my question. And the rest is history. James, of all you ever did in your ministry, and of all you ever wrote in these five magnificent chapters, if we only had that one verse, your mission would have been sufficient. It spurred all that we are doing in this final dispensation. So please, let them ask. Now, verse 6 continues, though, right on the, same, on the heels of the same thought. And it starts with, but, you're like, oh, darn it, I knew there'd be a catch. Verse 5 was too good to be true. Okay, what's, what's, what are the conditions? Well, it, it's okay. Break, it, calm down. It's all, it's all right. Keep reading. So yes, ask. He won't upbraid. He'll give liberally. But let him ask in faith. That's all that God is asking. Trust the process. Trust the person on the other side. 
Trust that he will reveal truth, that he won't upbraid, that he will give liberally. Trust Jesus. Trust God. Trust the Holy Ghost. Without that, then of course you're not going to get an answer because you'll never pick up the phone. You don't believe anyone's on the other line. You don't believe in the phone call. You don't believe in the, in the possibility of what God is promising. So at least start with that. Okay? In Alma 32, when Alma says to the skeptical, if you can't believe, or if, you can't, if you don't have faith at the beginning, then at least can you exercise a desire to believe? I mean, exercise that particle of faith, even if it's just a desire to believe. And I could picture a skeptic pushing back going, wait, I'm, you're trying to help me arrive at belief, and how do I get there? Well, start by believing. It's like, that's circular reasoning. That's leading the, the, the witness. Uh, if you can't believe, just try to believe. What? Well, the way I would clarify that, Alma is not saying believe in the, in the final answer. That's what you're testing in this experiment. But at least believe in the process. If you don't know the final answer, believe that you can get there. And that's the kind of faith that is being required of us here. So, you must ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea. I mean, the words themselves are so, are so perfect for each other. What's the root of waver? Well, a wave. So, if you're wavering, then yes, you're like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. There's nothing stable about where you are. And you need some stability to move forward with the faith in the process and in the person from whom you're seeking wisdom. Okay? So don't be that wavering wave. He goes on, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. He, he can't. Okay? He's such a moving target, the Lord can't even reach him. Okay? And then this great last one-liner, this wonderful pithy statement like the Proverbs are full of, to summarize what he's been saying in the last few verses. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Boom. There you have it. So if you're wavering, it's because you're double-minded. You can't come down on one side of the issue or the other. And that's not like proving contraries. In proving contraries, it's both sides are, are important and you have to join the two to keep either one from falling off to its extreme. Okay? That's not being double-minded. That's a very different thing. Here, being double-minded is, oh, I don't know if I should go or stop. I don't know if I should do this or that. And I'm so torn that it's paralyzed me and I cannot move forward. And if I can't move forward, then I'm not prepared to act in faith. And so no wonder God can't give me an answer. I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm paralyzed, like I said. In fact, when I was studying this, the word wavering caught my eye, like a burning bush. little godly glow there on the page, and that's my signal. Ooh, I better turn aside to see what's behind this word. When I looked it up in Greek, I realized that it's a combination of two other terms. Okay? And one of those terms means thoroughly back and forth. That's where you get this idea of, a, of wavering. But the other half of the term surprised me, because it means to judge or discriminate, and not kind of negative discrimination, but like I'm trying to make sense of something and, and decide on something. There's the judging part. Now, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Make wise decisions? 
be a critical thinker and come up with the right, the best possible choice? Well, yeah, as long as you come up with a choice. Because not choosing is choosing. And you're just kind of stuck where you are. And that's what James is warning us about. If you're wavering in terms of judging by thoroughly going back and forth and back and forth and never coming to an actual decision on how you're going to move forward, no wonder you're double-minded. You're, you can't, you're going to have to do something, but you refuse. Do you understand what I'm getting at? This is a fascinating passage. Earlier in this chapter, he described patience as an important thing. Let patience have her perfect work. But here, he's worried about that patience getting to an extreme and therefore needing a contrary to rein it in. How about patience and diligence? How about patience and faith? You understand? Patience and zeal. Whatever it might be to get you moving forward. Because if you can't move forward, then you're just still stuck on the wave, back and forth and up and down and to and fro and, and you're never moving forward. You remember James' overarching goal is to get the rubber to hit the road. How will we live the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, you got to choose and move forward. You can almost hear Elijah speaking up from the pages of the Old Testament. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Just choose. Okay? That's the message here. From there, he's going to shift gears and bring up another subject. The book of Proverbs is famous for that. It's not like some overarching narrative plot or even a single theme. It's like potpourri. A little of this and a little of that, and then we're going to mention this, and then we're going to do some of this. And he's not worried about connective tissue and all these transition statements. Same thing with James. It's like, okay, enough about that. What else do I need to bring up to all of you scattered tribes of Israel? How about verse 9 through 11? Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. So you who are poor temporally, be grateful that you are rich spiritually. And that does describe the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem pretty well. The ones that James saw on a day-to-day kind of basis. They would have been looked down upon by all of their fellow Jews. It would have been probably harder for them to get jobs and move forward in life. And they are a beleaguered, persecuted minority. They are of low degree. But don't feel bad about that. You have been exalted in the ways that matter most. But if that's true on one side, let's flip it over and talk to the opposite group. He says, but the rich, in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Essentially, verse 9 through 11 is the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And differentiating between the temporal and the spiritual and what really matters. I mean, Elder Ballard has taught that what matters most is what lasts the longest. And you get a sense with all of those words like pass away and wither and fall and perish and fade. Those are not permanent things. And so why would you lay up in store things that will will wither and die? to fall and fade. I mean, 
to save something that just goes up in smoke. What was the point of that? Remember what Jesus taught about moth and rust corrupting, about laying up in store treasures in heaven, because where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Little brother James here is saying something very similar and warning us about, oh, thinking our 401k is sufficient so that we don't have to lay up store in heaven. Are we closing out God on the other side of our gated community, thinking that we've, we've outgrown any need for his help? I'm good. I'm good on my own. Very dangerous thing. So that's a proverbial piece of advice in 9 through 11. In verse 12 and 13, he shifts gears and brings up something else. He says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Or as the JST reads, Blessed is the man that resisteth temptation. Not enough to just sit there and, and face it, endure it. You've got to resist, push back, overcome. Okay? But here it gets a little tricky because of that, that Greek challenge we saw earlier where temptation and trials all boil down to the same Greek word. And only context will tell us which one are you describing. A trial that comes from God to help us grow or a temptation that comes from the adversary in hopes of pulling us away from God. Well, which is which? In the JST version of resisting temptation, well, that's the part that comes from the adversary. We've got to overcome. But look at the next line. And I wonder if James is kind of playing on words and bouncing back and forth between the two possibilities. Because the next line says, For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. And think of that as far as the kinds of trials and tribulations that develop patience. And then patience has its perfect work. And what does it do? It works out our imperfections so that we can receive that crown of life. Okay. Now that crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So if I love the Lord and therefore know that he loves me and that the Lord chastens the son that he loveth. Didn't we see that in Hebrews before? Uh, other letters as well. So if I am open to the Lord's love, open to his lessons, which can sometimes require some, some difficulty, some trouble and tribulation, I'm okay with that. But let's flip back to the opposite side and let's look at the negative connotation of temptation. And here James says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. Now, because of the context there, we, we've got to opt for temptation rather than trial. Because the, door, the Lord does allow us to be tried. Uh, at times, I'm sure he tries us himself. We will make an earth whereon these may dwell so we can see if they will obey in every circumstance, right? But the temptation side of things, the Lord never tempts us with evil just to see if we're going to overcome it. He doesn't need to over-dramatize things. Life itself will give us plenty of opportunities to prove ourselves. And the adversary is a master at providing that kind of temptation, which we've got to learn to overcome. So don't shake your fist heavenward and blame God for putting a a temptation in your way. He doesn't do that. I would also say don't blame him when a trial comes your way because those are meant to help you grow. Okay, they're, they're, Again, difference there we really need to navigate. But I also want us to understand something about this idea of temptation. 
if we're on the negative side that the adversary seems to control, James is going to give us a definition of temptation. That's one of my favorites in Scripture. It makes it so clear what a temptation consists of. It's like, let's break it down into its component parts. Because if you're having a hard time overcoming temptation in general, well, maybe if we disassemble it and see, is there a part of this that I could, that I could overcome? If, I, if, if the whole thing assembled is too much for me? Look at verse 14. But every man is tempted when... So he's going to define when temptation occurs. And by doing so, he defines what a temptation consists of. Every man is tempted when he is, number one, drawn away of his own lust, and number two, enticed. When that happens, verse 15, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, in those two verses, 14 and 15, we see the definition of temptation and the evolution of sin. Let's unpack both. When it comes to the definition of temptation, according to James, two parts. You're drawn away of your own lust, and lust is your hunger. It's pulling you to in search of food wherever you can find it, including food that will poison you, including the kind that is merely being used as bait to catch you in the adversary's snares. That's the other half of the definition. You are enticed. Think about the two side by side. If you're a fisherman, for example, in the negative way, uh, that, well, Satan's going to be a negative fisherman. You positive fishermen out there, what do you use? What are you banking on to catch fish? Well, you always have bait or a lure, right? Something to trick the fish into thinking you're offering them something they want. Okay, that's the enticement. That's the lure. That's the bait. It's the temptation. But wait a minute. It, wouldn't that be enough then? Isn't just that enticement the temptation? And what I love about James's wisdom here is, no, that's only half the equation. Because haven't you ever had good bait, a good lure, and you still don't catch anything? Hmm, was your bait not sufficiently tempting? Was your lure not alluring enough? Well, if the fish wasn't hungry, then yeah, probably not. Haven't you ever been so full that, some, that, that a favorite dish of yours just doesn't look appetizing? That dessert that you have such a hard time saying no to, you have a hard time saying yes to right now because I'm stuffed, right? No wonder he starts with you're drawn away of your own lust. So hunger has to be there. To put it simply... The definition of temptation is hunger plus bait. It's drawn away of their own lust and enticed. And when you're fishing, when a hungry fish finds an appealing lure, you just caught something. But remove either of those two possibilities. They're either not hungry or there's no bait. And you're not going to catch a thing. Now take all of that insight and bring it to temptations from the adversary. And how might we overcome them? How might we resist temptation as the JST counsels? Well, let's take away either part. If I were to take away my hunger, then no matter what the adversary puts right in front of me, I'm just, I'm not tempted. I'm not, it doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me. It's not alluring. 
Now, that, wouldn't that be nice? Now, in some ways, that's what fasting is for, to help us overcome hunger or learn how to resist its pull. If I could replace the natural man within me, starve him to death would be a good approach. If I can conquer the natural man and yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, then my nature changes. I'm being sanctified through Christ. And therefore, what used to tempt me no longer does because my hunger is no longer there. For some, that is hard, hard work. Well, in some, in some ways, it's hard work for all of us. But for some, it's at all, that almost seems impossible. That's okay. As you're working toward that and seeking that gift from God, there is another option, and that is to eliminate the bait. And so where do you know that bait might appear? Remember, avoid even the appearance of evil. Where might evil appear? Stay away from those places. And if I know that, yep, there's bait whenever I go there or whenever I turn on that channel or when I just open up my laptop or my phone uh, outside of the eyes of other people, then that's where, I'm, that's where the bait always appears. And I don't, have the temp- I don't have the strength, spiritual strength or self-discipline to resist it. My hunger is present. It's actually interesting because in some ways, gauge your hunger first, perhaps. And if you know the hunger is there, you're going to have to work double time to avoid places where bait might come. On the flip side, if there are times where, or places where bait is unavoidable, we live in an age and in a, in a, a place where sin is always accessible. It's pushing its way toward us. In that case, I better start working on my hunger and fill myself with better things. Remember, don't leave your, your room empty, swept, and garnished. Fully furnish it with the power that Scripture provides, for example. You understand? To me, I'm very grateful for James's help because it gives me opportunity to think about both sides of the issue and which can I work on in any given circumstance. Now, why do I need to work on it, no matter what? Because that other thing he told us. The evolution of sin, where does it start? Remember how he said it? When lust hath conceived, ooh, that's a birth word. And lust conceives when it meets its partner, which is bait. Take the two halves of the whole in verse 14. Allow them to come together in verse 15. And what does lust give birth to? It has conceived and it bringeth forth sin. That's the offspring of hunger and bait. Temptation has been presented. It's come together. We have succumbed to it. And now sin has come forth. Now, it's not over. We can repent of that sin. We can nip it in the bud. And we better, because if we allow it to grow up, it's just an an infant right now. But if I let it grow up, what is it when it is finished? James says, it bringeth forth death. The infant sin is death itself. It grows into the grim reaper. And that we have to avoid at all costs. Okay, We do it by overcoming sin early on, as early as possible. Or even earlier before it conceives. Eliminate the lust or avoid the bait. You with me? From there, can we shift gears? Again, we're jumping all over the place in this this beautiful compilation of wisdom thoughts. 
Verse 16, do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, I love the description at the end there. We are his, his creatures. More than creatures, we're his children. He is the Father of our spirits, as well as the Father of lights. All truth, all glory, all wisdom comes from him. And it's his own will that he begat us by the word of truth. God chose to create us. He chose to call us into covenant relationship. He chose to beget us, spiritually speaking, by inviting us into the kingdom of God. That was his request. It was his will. He wants us. No wonder he doesn't upbraid. No wonder he's so liberal in giving us all that we need. There's something so reassuring and beautiful about this. So when he goes, when he says at the beginning of that passage, do not err, I think what he's warning us about is do not err in your perception of God. I guess in some ways that first phrase should it be connected backwards to verse 15 or forwards to verse 17? I, I love that 16 is right on the, the border there. Because if, it, if we're supposed to attach it to what it, it comes after, then it's, hey, you better watch out for sin and temptation because sin brings forth death and it's all on your lust. So, hey, bro, beloved brethren, you better not err. And there's this sense of, I mean, there's, there's the justice side of things. I am trying to guard against any, I mean, flirtation with temptation. So I'm avoiding the whole thing. I do not want to err. So in some ways, if you read 14, 15, 16, all in one breath, ooh, there's justice staring you in the face, and I'm going to try my absolute hardest. That's good. But what if I fail? What if I'm not over, able to overcome my hunger? What if I'm not able to avoid all bait? What if I do succumb to the lusts of the flesh and I bring forth sin? Now... I know you warned me, and I'm sorry. And I know you're still warning me, don't let it grow up then. Well, how do I keep it from growing up when it's too late for me? I've already blown it. Well, now reread 16, but this time connect it to 17 and 18. And it's still don't err, but it's not don't err in your perfect obedience. It's too late for that. But from here on out, do not err in your estimation of how God feels about you. Realize that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from Him. And He still wants to give you that gift, those gifts, including the gift of forgiveness. He wants to reassure you. He wants you to come unto Him. This time you don't lack wisdom. This time you lack worthiness. It's okay. You can still ask for help. And I will give liberally and I will not upbraid. I am of a forgiving disposition. The Father of lights, whose own will it was to bring you into the family and to make you more like me. It's profound, profound thoughts that, that James is giving us. He then gives us a new piece of advice in verse 19 through 21. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, so wherefore, as a result of what you now know about God, 
Wherefore, my beloved, you're loved by me, you're loved by God. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Have you got that right? Oh, it would change everything. I've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Haven't you ever heard that? Okay, so I'm swift to hear. I'm slow to speak. And as a result, I'm slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. In other words, your uncontrolled anger, it's not going to get you anywhere, especially when it's directed at God. I mean, yeah, he can take it, but it certainly isn't helping you much. Okay, so please be slow to wrath. Don't shake your fist heavenward and don't swing your fist at anyone else around you. Okay, be slow to that. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and all superfluity of naughtiness, which is such a great King Jamesism. Superfluity of naughtiness? What on earth is that? Well, superfluity is superabundance. It's extra. And you've got to avoid that extra naughtiness, that abundance of wickedness. What should you be doing instead? Receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. And by engrafted, he means implanted or inborn, which I love. I mean, he... He, it was his will to beget you with the word of truth. So it's in you. You were made for this. Made to resonate with the word that he has already planted inside. Hmm, there's something powerful about that. And if I'll respond, talk about a better hunger, right? Talk about something, a homing beacon that brings me back to God, the father of lights. It draws me close to him. So in some ways, what the practical advice James is giving us here, calm down, avoid wrath, humble yourself, open both ears, close your mouth, listen, be willing to accept what God is teaching, just yield, give in in a good way, yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to sin and temptation, don't yield, swim away from that hook. But when it comes to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, yes, by all means, give in to that. He will lead you right. I, I do love the advice that James is giving us. Uh, if I am an ancient Jewish Christian or Christian Jew, am I sensing this is how I ought to live, no matter what my circumstances? I mean, I've got some reasons to get angry. I'm being persecuted. Let it go. Let patience have her perfect work. And just trust the process. God is trying to polish you of your rough edges. And sometimes that requires some friction from other things. From there, he then kind of pulls it all together and gives some amazing advice in 22 through 24. He says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And then he's going to talk about deception, okay, with some interesting metaphors. He says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. So he's looking himself in the mirror, okay? For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Which is kind of comical. If you think about the ancient world, I mean, in our modern day, we are surrounded by reflections of ourselves. There are so many surfaces that are reflective. 
And so think about how many times in an hour you see your own face looking back at you, bouncing off something. Well, that's a modern thing. That was not an ancient thing. Imagine how, it'd be odd, wouldn't it? How infrequently you'd actually see what you look like. Well, imagine if you got all dolled up for something. You got all dressed up and you did your hair and you, and you bathed for maybe the first time in quite a while, uh, you ancients. But you are now looking as presentable as possible. This might be one of those one moments you actually need to look in a mirror and want to look in, into a mirror because you're going to be impressed with what you see. But again, this is your Sunday best, so to speak. This is your most presentable appearance. And then you put the mirror away. I mean, if you even had the money to afford one. You borrowed one from some of those, one of those rich people that he was referring to earlier. And wow, I look really good. Is that me? Shocking. And then we go on. And all kinds of time passes before we ever get a chance to self-reflect again. And what does that leave in our, in our memories? Ah, what we saw of ourselves on our very best day. And that's what James is warning us about. Because if you just hear the word and you're thinking, wow, that rings true. Uh, the engrafted word within me is resonating and, oh yeah, I believe. Okay, great. Are you going to do anything about it? This is the therefore what or the so what. This is the intent to act on the truth that you've received. But if you don't, if you merely hear and never do, then the problem is you looked yourself in the mirror on, on your very best day. And you perked up with the re realization that that is truth that is being taught you. And it feels so wonderful to know the truth. Okay, are you going to do something about it? Because if you don't, you've just gone through the next day, week, month, whatever, without ever checking the mirror again. And your hair's got a bit messed up, and you got, you got a little something there on your face, and you haven't shaved in a while, and I mean, fill in the blanks for yourself, but imagine letting a month pass without a whole lot of personal upkeep, and then passing a reflective uh, uh, surface, going down to the river to wash your clothes, and you look in, you look in the river and realize, oh, I need the wash even more than my clothes do. You understand? It's a powerful metaphor, especially for the ancient world. So don't just hear. Please do the practical aspect of Christianity. James' specialty. I will confess, and I've laughed about this with my students sometimes. Well, we would laugh if it weren't so sad. I've said, have you ever had a spiritual impression that came really strong like you need to do something? Call this person, send an email, uh, go visit so-and-so. Any kind of call to action. Because that's often what the Spirit does. Yes, the Spirit confirms truth, but often what it does is compel us to action. Now, actually, it's not compelled. That's the problem. It's left up to us. And as it's left to us, do you act on it or not? Because here's what I found from my own experience, and this is, this is lamentable. I love feeling the Holy Ghost. And to feel a prompting from the Spirit in some ways is such a sacred honor. Like God knows me enough to inspire me to do something. Oh, it, it fills the soul. But as I've said with my students, 
does it sometimes feel so good to receive the prompting that it almost feels like you've actually acted on it when you haven't yet? Because honestly, I'm guilty of this. Where an impression will come, I feel the thrill of the Holy Ghost. And I'm so grateful for that feeling that I'm just kind of warmed by that. And then I move on with other things and I've got this to do. And oh yeah, I've got to do that. And, and you picture the, the Lord up there going, no, 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 what, what are you doing? The, I didn't give you that just to make you feel good that you picked up the phone. I put you on assignment. So go fulfill the assignment. This is, this is such a key text for all that James is doing in, the, in his book. Don't just listen. Do. In fact, if listening has increased your knowledge, but your action is still down at the same place it used to be, the gap between what we know we should do and what we're actually doing is filled with sin. That's sins of omission. I'm not doing it. I know I should. Well, I'm not suggesting that you forget all you've learned. I'm certainly not forget, uh, suggesting that you plug your ears when God is trying to get your attention. But when he increases your knowledge, he's increased your accountability. When he's given you revelation, he expects us to act on it. And so no wonder we must be doers of the word to bring our action in line with our inspiration. Now he builds on that in verse 25 where he says, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And notice all those words. The deed. The doer. You're looking. You're acting. You're not just hearing and then forgetting. Huge difference there. In fact, the looking, it's intense. The Greek word there literally means to bend down in order to look at something. This is not some give it a passing glance as you hurry by. No, you're like searching for something. You're bending over and examining something closely. And in this case, you are looking into the perfect law of liberty. This is, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That's the perfect law of liberty. And yes, it's perfect. That word keeps coming up in the epistle of James. I think seven times it appears. And it's that perfect law of liberty. Once we recognize it's all on us, it's all agency. That's how much liberty we've been given. So I guess I am free to ignore the promptings that come. I am free to hear and then disregard. Don't be that type of disciple. That's not a disciple, actually. That's a forgetful hearer. But to be a doer of the work, ah, those are the ones that are blessed, not merely for their intentions, but for their actual deeds. And then Paul gives two examples of that. In verse 26 and 27, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. And I imagine it's vain in both meanings of the word. Both meaningless, like vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's just passing, it's fleeting, it doesn't count for anything. And also vain in terms of, oh, you're so vain. You're so self-centered. Is that what we've turned our religion into? I mean, I think I'm a spiritual person. Isn't that enough? Well, no. Do you act like it? How do you treat 
other people. What do you say to them? Or maybe even more potentially damning, what do you say about them behind their back? This idea of the tongue is something James is going to come back to later in his letter. So hold on to it. But then the second example, just as important as the first. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Or as the JST clarifies, unspotted from the vices of the world. I mean, I want you to be in it. Go, make, go and make a difference. But don't let the, di the differences be made in you. Don't succumb to its vices. In some ways, what he's asking there is to avoid sins of commission, the vices of the world, but also avoid or overcome sins of omission, the good things you know you ought to do, particularly to your neighbor. They need our help. We're in this thing together, right? One heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor among us. If we saw earlier the rich and the poor and the haves and the have-nots and here, you've got to be better at giving. Because it's one thing to claim religion. Oh, hold on to all that orthodoxy that Paul's been preaching. But when will the rubber hit the road? When will it be converted into actual practice where you are strengthening the feeble knees? You're lifting the hands that hang down. You're especially looking to the fatherless and widows, which were such a protected group throughout the pages of the Old Testament. The Jews would have known that. And what am I doing to help them? Honestly, James chapter 1 is such a masterpiece. And from start to finish, lacking wisdom, let him ask. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Uh, not a, a wavering wave or a, a double-minded man. There is so much incredible truth in just this one chapter. The second builds on it and in some ways expands upon it to, to address the issue that Paul has raised and how do we balance grace and law or in this case, how do we balance faith and works. It's been faith, 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 but in James's mind, yeah, but is it being converted into action? Are you doing anything? Where's the work to show your faith? I'm not saying works to, to replace your faith, God forbid. But are your, is your faith being made manifest in the way you treat the fatherless and the widow, in the way you bridle your tongue, in the way you care for your fellow saint? That's going to be the message of chapter 2. So verse 1, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Which can be easily misunderstood, so let's get a little JST to help us. My brethren, ye cannot have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and yet have respect for persons. In some ways, that's the thesis statement of this part of the chapter, the beginning of chapter 2. If you're a believer in Jesus then you cannot, you must not show favoritism. He dropped a hint about this back in chapter 1 when it was the rich and the poor. But he's back to this now of, are you treating everyone like equals? No matter how well or poorly dressed they look when they come to church? Are you acting like family here? Or are you picking friends and playing favorites? The New Living Translation of that passage makes that crystal clear. My dear brothers and sisters, and yes, that's how we ought to see each other. 
How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Well, here's his example of it. Verse 2, 3, 4. This is what he's been seeing when he goes to somebody's house church there in the city. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel. Can you picture that happening? They walk right in and everyone's ooing and aahing like, whoa, I thought Paul said that not many rich, not many noble would be attracted to the kingdom of God. But man, this person not only was attracted, they're attractive. I mean, all eyes on them. Gold ring, goodly apparel. And then right after them, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. Hmm, how are you going to react? If ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, that's the goodly apparel, there's the gold ring, the happy, look at every, all eyes on me, the gay clothing, and say unto him, ah, sit thou here in a good place, and yet flip it around. If you say to the poor, stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool, are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts, or evil thinking judges? as we would say. The JST makes it even clearer. Are ye not then in yourselves partial judges and become evil in your thoughts? What James is recommending here is that we become impartial judges of one another. That I'm going to treat everyone on an equal basis. And just because they're wealthy or well-dressed when they come into court, I'm not going to automatically assume that they're innocent. And if they come in in vile clothing, I'm not going to make them guilty of sin when they've only been guilty of want. Do you understand the difference? We have to be better judges here. I mean, we still need to be discriminating in terms of making righteous judgment calls. It's the JST of the Sermon on the Mount again, right? Here's James always building on things he, heard, he learned from his older brother, older half-brother. Judge not that ye be not judged is what the King James gave us, but the JST of Matthew 7, 1. Judge not unrighteously that ye be not judged. Nevertheless, judge righteous judgment. There is a judgment call being made here, but it's not going to be based on the, the outward I'm not going to give the throne to this person that came in looking like a king. And then for standing room only, or sit under my footstool. In fact, be my footstool. Hey, just sit on the floor and then, can I put my feet on you? Can I trample you underfoot? You're probably used to it by now. I mean, how else did you get your clothes so dirty? Uh, we got to be careful with that. Think back to our discussion in the Old Testament last year about King Solomon known so much for his wisdom. I mean, who would have had the genius, let's, let's cut the baby in half, who knowing that the maternal heartstrings will, will be manifest, and I'll know who's the true mother here. That is wise. But do you remember our discussion last year? Even beyond uh, Solomon's wisdom was Solomon's willingness not to pass judgment on people that would normally be looked down upon. Not to be an impartial and unrighteous judge. Because who were those two women? Remember? They were both prostitutes. So who was this baby that they were fighting over? Some illegitimate child. The fact that Solomon would honor even those maternal ties and treat them with 
respect do a human being speaks volumes of the goodness of Solomon, not just his wisdom. And those are, that's the kind of judge we must be. I actually read an article years ago. I think it was around 2013. I looked it up. And I think that's when it was. There was a bishop somewhere in the Salt Lake Valley who was trying to dramatize to his ward these kinds of principles. Are we caring for the hands that hang down? Are we strengthening the feeble knees? Are we looking out with compassion for the widow, the widow and the fatherless? Or are we judging people? Uh, how would we treat the poor compared to treating the, the rich? Well, he was the bishop. And so everybody treats him with respect, right? Well, but what if he dresses up like a homeless man and then waits outside his own chapel on a Sunday morning? And he had a friend with ser serious skills dress him up and add whiskers and, and, and big glasses and, and the clothing of a homeless person. And there he was outside his own chapel on a Sunday morning as people passed and often looked away. How, how did they treat him? He actually came to church with everybody. Sat there in the front row and people were kind of looking and uh, who let this person in? The only person in the congregation that was in on it was the bishop's counselor. And as the counselor was conducting the meeting, in the bishop's absence, everyone thought, this homeless man almost made a scene of, like, can I say something? Can I talk? And the counselor, well, okay, if you have something to say. And this homeless man came up and talked a little bit about how he'd been treated out front and then took off his hat and his glasses and his beard as gasps erupted across the chapel. And people realized, I judged someone unrighteously. I jumped to a conclusion. I treated this man differently than he deserved to be treated. And not just, oh, because he's the bishop, I'm supposed to. No, he's a human being. Okay? And, and James is, I could picture James doing something like that, pulling off one of those incredible object lessons right there in his Jerusalem church. Bless that bishop who did just that. With that, move forward. Verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Yeah, God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't look down on them. He looks up to them. He reaches out to the poor. He cares for the lowly. Those are the ones that are so often more, most drawn to God because they trust in God. There's no one else for them. There's no, arm on their, there's no flesh on their arm. There's no other people to come to their aid. So, of course, they choose God, and they are rich in faith. Compare that to how the rich often act. He says, but ye have despised the poor, and that puts you in the wrong company here, because that's what the rich often do. He says, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? In some ways, he's asking, why do we look up to people that tend to look down on everyone else, including us? Well, those rich who exploit their workers, who sue one another in courts, who make a mockery of God by taking advantage of his children. That's what he just described. They oppress you. They draw you in before the judgment seat. They blaspheme the worthy name. 
that you've taken upon yourselves. And yet, for whatever reason, we still stand in awe of those celebrity figures, even though they're looking down their noses at the rest of us. I love the practicality, the pragmatism of James. He's just trying to whip us into shape. And it hurts at times. It's meant to. He's calling repentance in passage after passage. He keeps doing it in verse 8 and 9. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. How's that for quoting the book of Leviticus? If you are doing that, that is the royal law. If you can love your neighbor as yourself, then ye do well. But, flip side, if ye have respect to persons, treat some people one way, treat other people a different, just based on what they look like when they come into church. If ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced, or better translation, convicted of the law as transgressors. Think about it. Plain favorites is not loving your neighbor. Plain favorites is how we make friends, but it's not how we treat family. Because family, you're just, you didn't choose them. You're just, you're, you're stuck, okay? For better or worse, make it work. Make it better. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount again, as we've been doing so frequently. And what did Jesus say? If you only love those that love you, even a publican can do that. Isn't that right? Matthew, write that down. Yeah, Matthew the publican. He's like, uh, yeah, ouch. To me, there's something beautiful about this reminder we, we need to be better than that. And not, I, I would say it this way, respecting everyone instead of just respecting those we assume are worthy of respect. In verse 10, he then says something that might rock our world. He says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and these Jewish Christians have spent their entire lives attempting to do so, but here's the bad news. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Yikes. I actually taught this once to an institute student, and he was so troubled by it. He sent me an email later that day, and he said, that just doesn't sit with me well. It seems so unjust of God that if you've committed any single sin, you're guilty of all the others that you haven't committed. Really? Then he used an example. So if I tell one little white lie, I might as well have committed adultery? Is that what James is saying? I was like, whoa, okay. When you put it in those terms, that can't possibly be what he's saying. I mean, we know from places like oh, Alma 39 that there is a hierarchy of sin, and some sins are worse than others, right? Denying the Holy Ghost is worse, the worst, and then uh, murder is second, and then immorality is third. So yes, there must be... No, uh, t telling a white lie is not as bad as committing adultery. But with that realization, what exactly is James saying here? Now, we've talked about this before in our study of the law in Paul's epistles. And the point we made is that the law is not a rope, it's a chain. And the thing about a chain is you don't have to break every link to break the chain. Breaking one link will do. A single broken link renders the chain unusable. It, it can't do what it was designed to do. And if we think about the law of Moses, or the commandments of God, each individual rule or command as a link in the chain, 
I didn't have to break every single one of them to become unworthy of the salvation of God. But if I've broken any single one, then the thought of returning to God based on my perfect obedience to law, that ship has sailed. In fact, that ship has sunk. There's no way for it. I am now left either on my side of the abyss or the only solution is to trust wholeheartedly in the grace of Jesus Christ. Remember this analogy? He's not coming over with a welding torch to re-weld that broken link. It's like, nope, you cannot be saved by obedience to law. It worked for me, but I'm the only one that ever pulled it off. I didn't break a single link in my chain. So now will you trust my chain and trust me as I'm trying to hold on to you and swing you back to God on the strength of my perfect obedience? Do you understand the difference? The merits and mercy of him who is mighty to save? He's the one that does it. So here, well, the point I'm trying to make here is, well, the, excuse me, the point that James is trying to make here. If you're guilty in one point, then salvation through the law is no longer a possibility for you. What's left? Salvation through the grace of God. Come unto Christ. Rely wholly upon his merits. It's the only hope we have. So verse 11, to further explain the point he just made, for he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. I mean, those are side by side in the Ten Commandments, and they've got the same fingerprints all over them, okay? Same handwriting. Now, if thou commit no adultery, and that's good, yet if thou kill, mm, that's bad, what's the result for you? Thou art become a transgressor of the law. Now, again, you didn't transgress all the laws, plural, but you transgressed the law, singular. You didn't break every commandment, but you have now shown you are a commandment breaker. And so, you understand on the one hand why you should not be a respecter of persons? Because that describes us all. And though we might sin differently than one another, we're all sinners. In some ways, even if that, that ranking that that student had such a concern with, yeah, there's different degrees of wickedness here. But is that all we are? Is difference... We're, we're all sinners, only different in degree, not different in kind. You catch that? It's simply a matter of how much time are you in prison compared to me, but we're all jailbirds. We've all done things that make us guilty. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as Paul puts it in James' language. We're, we're all rule breakers, so the law is broken by us all. He then says, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So please act as if you were under judgment as well, because you are. Okay? Again, your, your prison time might not be as long as somebody else's, but realize that you are guilty, and therefore, this law of liberty? I mean, you are free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose the consequences of those actions. Remember, the law of liberty includes both agency and accountability. And you're accountable for your sins just as much as they're accountable for theirs. We're all in the same sinking ship. So we need to look at each other, judge each other, treat each other as equally condemned in some ways, but also equally open to the mercy that can come from Christ. If he can forgive me, then of course he can forgive you. 
or as James says it next, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. In other words, we're going to be judged based on how we judge others. And Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount also. No wonder we need to judge the poor, whether that's poor in money or poor in spirit. No wonder we need to judge them well. There's, there's really not much of a difference between them and me. Remember that great conference talk years ago about the two missionaries? One was doing awesome, the other one was struggling. And the senior companion looked down, really looked down his nose at this other junior companion thinking, Father, why did you stick me with such a horrible missionary? And the spirit immediately responded, You know, compared to me, you two aren't that different. Yikes. <laughs> compared to perfection himself. No matter where we are on the scale of guilt, we're a lot more like each other than any of us are like him. So treat each other better. Okay, that's Paul's, excuse me, that's James's advice. He then says in verse 14, and this is tricky because if you look at, at the footnotes here on your page, all kinds of JST changes are about to come. He actually changes the order in a lot of these verses. We're going to stick with the King James order just for simplicity's sake here, but we're going to bring up the JST corrections whenever they appear. Okay, start in verse 14, and this goes all the way through verse 21, so we're going to be here for a while. He says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? See, he's shifting gears. We've got a new subject here. But it's one of the most important topics that James brings up in his whole letter. Okay? You say you have faith. Fine. But you don't have works? Hmm, here's my question. Can faith save him? And then here's a good analogy. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and I've been talking about the poor for a while here, so you see them all around you, okay? Maybe this is one of those widows or fatherless that needs your help. Well, what kind of help are you going to give them? Here they come, naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Ah, depart in peace. Be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Or the JST. What profit is your faith unto such? This is such a great visual aid. Yes, there is an inspiration in faith. But there is a pragmatism in works. And James is the ultimate pragmatist among these New Testament writers. You say you want them to be warmed and filled. As you are passing them by... Oh, casting a backward glance. You say, oh, oh, bless you. Uh, I'll, I'll pray for you. I have faith that God will come through for you. When you're the one through whom God is trying to help them. You, under, you understand the problem here? James is painting such a perfect picture. Your faith isn't actually helping them when you have it within your power to help them in far more tangible ways. He goes on in verse 17, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works, or the JST version. Yea, a man may say, I will show thee I have faith without works. But I say, and now back to the King James, Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And that's the biggest difference. Is it all just talk to you? 
Are you a hearer of the word or a doer? Are you a person of faith alone or a person of faith and works together? Remember, he is not trying to replace faith with works. He's trying to make sure that faith is manifest in works. Faith still gets pride of place, even in James. Faith is still the foundation of all of these things. Our belief in Jesus Christ. I'm not paying him back through my works. I'm certainly not paying him off or paying him in advance. No. I'm not earning salvation. But I am putting into visible practice what Jesus has done in me. My, faith, my invisible faith is becoming visible through my works. That's the difference. Elder Oaks has, done this, has taught this powerfully when he said, quoting James, yes, faith without works is dead, but works without faith is deader. We're proving contraries. Okay, this is not an either or. This is a both and. We are, we are trying to stay in the Goldilocks zone, though. And those that were so works righteousness oriented, so legalistic with the law of Moses, that there was no, it wasn't mixed with faith the way, the way uh, Paul said it last time in Hebrews. But what if it's not, what if your faith is never mixed with works? That's just the equal but opposite problem. And so please let your faith be seen. Actually give some of your food to that poor person. Take off those rich robes and cover the cold. And not only will they appreciate your faith, they'll really be grateful that your faith bore fruit. Right? You have something to show for it. Let's put it this way. Works embody faith, while faith ennobles work. Works prove faith, while faith purifies work. Works make faith more physical, while faith makes work more spiritual. Works bring faith down to earth, while faith lifts work up to heaven. These two are meant to be forever united. A contrary that must be proven constantly. Depending on how you're wired, if you're a little more Mary or a little more Martha, if you're a little more head or a little more heart, if you're a little more works or a little more faith, realize you might have to compensate by making it more of an intentional goal to reach in the side that doesn't come so naturally. If you're a natural worker, keep up the good work, but mix in healthy helpings of faith. And if you're the naturally the faith-filled, make sure that your faith has legs to stand on and feet to walk and hands to give. Do something. Okay? I think we all have, if we're sufficiently self-aware, as we're proving contraries, we'll know which side of the issue we're on. And therefore, hopefully, which direction we need to move. He then says in verse 19, Thou believest that there is one God. Great, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. <laughs> it's like big deal. I almost laugh at this one. The JST even makes it worse. It, it adds, thou hast made thyself like unto them, not being justified. If all you do is say and believe without actually acting on it, 
then you're no better than the devil himself because the devil knows. Oh, he's got an incredible testimony. Amazing amount of knowledge. He just never acts on it in the right way. His faith is unmixed with works. Actually, he works a ton, but it's all on the wrong side. James then says, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? There it is, says it again. And the JST, again clarifying, in case we missed the point, faith without works is dead and cannot save you. At the end of the day, it's just not enough to believe. And again, it's not just James saying it. Paul would say the same. God forbid if you think that it's grace does things in spite of you. God forbid that you think you can begin presuming upon his grace. That's not the case. But what separates us from the devils? Well, what we do with what we know. So may we do. Now in verse 21, James is going to give us an example. And you'll be amazed by who he chooses. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Now what amazes me about that is the fact that James calls Abraham to the witness stand in order to defend the need for works. Picture him bringing him up. Said, now, Abraham, you had faith, right? Oh, of course, of course. Uh, what, and was that enough for God? Well, what do you mean? Did he accept your testimony, for example, and never ask you to do anything about it? Were you allowed to be a hearer of the word only without ever being a doer? And Abraham would say, oh, no, 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 far from it. God asked me to do all kinds of things. I mean, I'll give you an example. He asked me to sacrifice my own son. Wow. So he wanted, to, he wanted you to give evidence of your faith through your works. Hmm. No further questions, Your Honor. Now, what's ironic about this is, do you remember back in the book of Romans, and actually repeated in the book of Hebrews just last week in the, in the Faith Hall of Fame, who does Paul bring to the witness stand to illustrate the importance of, of faith? Abraham. So it's, picture this. James leaves and he's like, okay, no further witnesses. And then Paul gets up and says, wait, wait, don't, don't, can you please stay? Stay there, Abraham. I have another question for you. Uh, isn't it true, though, that when all was said and done, you actually didn't have to sacrifice your son, Isaac? Well, yes, technically. Uh, I, but I was going to. Oh, I know. I, I, granted. I, I remember, I, I explained this last week in Hebrews 11. You had fully intended to go through with it, knowing, believing that you could bring him, raise him from the grave. Okay? I, I, again, I'm blown away by your willingness to do that. But I'm even more blown away by your faith. And blown away, while I'm thinking of it, of God's willingness to count your faith as if you had done the work. Because as you just admitted, you didn't actually sacrifice your son. The hand was stayed. Now you picture James, oh, objection, your honor. And your honor, the judge, overruled. Continue, counselor. Explain what you're trying to describe here. Now I'm pitting James against Paul here in the courtroom, and that's not wise, because they were on the same side. 
But what I'm trying to demonstrate is that they were using the same witness to illustrate two different halves of the whole. And Abraham's totally fine with this. Because it's like, James, I'm on your side. I, I'm willing to do any work God commands of me. And Paul, I'm on your side. Because it all boils down to the faith I had in God that propelled me to act. You, you we're all on the same page here, right? And James and Paul look at each other and smile. Yes, we are. And they look up at the judge and he smiles back. And then they all look into the camera at us watching this courtroom scene unfold. And they're like, we're all together on this. Okay? We're proving contraries. Looky there. And to me, there's something, it, it's, it's such a powerful thing to realize that you can turn to the same example in Scripture and say, Abraham, were you acting in faith or in works? And he just smiles and says, yes, I was. You get it? I love the fact that it's the same story and the same person that Abraham is proving the contrary and his Faith is being made manifest by work. And his work, even when it doesn't all work as intended, and he didn't go through with the sacrifice because God stopped him, it still is evidence of that faith. And it's faith, first and foremost, that gets us through. In fact, there's a JST in this passage that's really fascinating at how minor it seems. Because in that line when James says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? The JST reverses the order and says, Seest thou how works wrought with his faith? And I was wrestling with that going, what's the difference? It, they're both working with each other. This is a symbiotic relationship. They're mutually reinforcing, faith and works are. Neither one is dead because each side has the other half to keep it going. Right? Faith providing the motivation for works and work providing the evidence of faith. But what I love about the change of order, in the King James when it suggested that, hey, it's all about works, but hey, faith was working in it. This is like it was mix, faith was mixed in. But the JST actually gives faith the pride of place. That it wasn't faith just working through those works. It was works working through that faith. And by putting faith in oh, pole position, it does keep in perspective that it is by grace that we are saved. All we can do is just to manifest that grace is at work in us. Okay, Think back, I know there's been so many examples of this, but think back to our discussions of the letters of Paul and not only his God forbid statements, but also how frequently he mentioned works, but always kept them in proper perspective. We Latter-day Saints would be wise to do likewise. Or we will simply end up overcorrecting from Martin Luther's overcorrection. You with me? We keep swinging the pendulum farther and farther. And if Catholicism was too far on the side of works, they were outside the Goldilocks zone. Then Martin Luther came along and out of that Catholic extreme, he swung the pendulum right past the Goldilocks zone to a faith extreme that began to presume upon God's grace. Well, out of that environment did the Latter-day Saint culture form and react and overreact, saying, oh, I'm, not, I'm never going to be guilty of presuming upon that grace. 
I'm going to work my tail off. And pretty soon it becomes something closer to works righteousness. Sooner or later, we've got to find the Goldilocks zone. Sooner or later, I pray there will be a generation that can keep them in balance. And that can say with James and with Paul and with Elder Oaks that yes, faith without works is dead and works without faith is deader. So let's be alive in Christ, shall we? And give evidence of that life by the way we live it. He thus concludes this chapter. One last example, verse 25 and 26. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? I mean, it's a much smaller hall of fame, but if James is starting to organize a few display cases, interesting he would bring Rahab in because Paul used her in the faith hall of fame too. But in the works hall of fame, yeah, but she didn't just pay them lip service. She protected them. She sent them out another way. She put her life on the line. She proved how much faith she had in the God of Israel by honoring the servants of that living God. With that in mind, last line, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let me say that for a third time to make sure it's crystal clear. Now, that's an interesting analogy. And remember when you took the ACT or the SAT, there were those analogies so you could wrestle with relationships. Dog is to puppy as cat is to kitten. Ah, we're looking for offspring. That makes sense. Well, in this one, it's actually kind of odd when you, when you set it up the way James just described it. As the body without the spirit is dead. So there's a relationship. So, now here's the, the next one. Faith without works is dead also. But if we were to print this out or, or depict it as a this is to this as that is to that, it would look like this. Body is to spirit. That's what he said in the first line. As faith is to works in the second line. Now, that's great. Until you really think about it and go, wait a minute, I would probably connect faith with spirit and works with body. Because isn't the body the the physical, tangible part? And the spirit's just inside? And the works are the physical, tangible, visible part? Whereas the faith is the invisible force behind it? Well, Yeah, and that makes total sense and that, that does work. If we're forced to wrestle with what seems like a mistake on James' part, it's like, no, I'm going to keep it in that order. With Body without spirit is dead, and faith without works is dead. So in what way is faith like the body and works like the spirit? That's a little harder to wrestle with. But let's, let's do some wrestling. Here's one possibility. The spirit is what brings the body to life. And works are what bring faith to life. I mean, in some ways, it's chicken and egg, and both are bringing life to the other. But to think about my works enlivening my faith, fascinating. Or how about this one? The body cannot survive without the spirit. It's dead, after all. Faith cannot survive without works. They've got to be grounded in something that I'm doing Okay, again, it's not my works that are saving me, but in, in a way, are my works saving my faith? I'm doing something and my faith is flourishing. I just, I see the gospel in action. Amazing how that works. Or how about this one? The spirit can stand alone. I mean, sort of. 
And works can stand alone, sort of, but so much better when they have their other half. How about this one? The spirit without the body cannot receive a fullness of joy. We know that from the Doctrine and Covenants. But plug that into to James's analogy, and works without faith cannot receive a fullness of joy either. And I think we've all had <laughs> painful experience with that, that I'm doing and doing and doing, but sometimes church feels like life on the chain gang. Well, those works are not mixed with faith. Whereas if they were done because of faith and infused with faith and in hopes of strengthening faith, both mine and that of others, oh, it, all of a sudden it doesn't feel like work anymore. This is how, how sweet is the work instead. We still have chapter 3, 4, and 5 ahead with some amazing practical advice where the rubber continues to hit the road. But to see where we've come thus far in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and to be left with that amazing reminder to prove an essential contrary at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith and works coming together to make us like he who was the personification of both. Jesus is the object of our faith. But he did so much to bless us. By the time we finished James 1 and 2, an incredible foundation has been laid. We have been taught powerful principles about pragmatic Christianity, the practice of coming unto Christ, asking for wisdom when we lack it, right? Giving to the poor, actually clothing the, the naked and feeding the hungry instead of just paying them lip service. We're no longer merely hearing the word. We're doing it, knowing that my faith without works is, might as well be dead. Can we build on that, though, in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 and in chapter 5? James, you're on a roll. Keep rolling then. Keep teaching me. Remind me of more things I should be doing as a result of my mighty faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's an invitation that, that James is more than willing to accept. And so starting in chapter 3, verse 1, let's keep acting in faith and doing the will of God. My brethren, be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, what, what do you mean by many masters? Now, the New International Version translates it this way. Not many of you should become teachers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And, ouch, thanks a lot, I am a teacher, so now I'm, I'm held to a higher standard? Well, not necessarily. I think what he's saying there is, if you're teaching, it's because you're supposed to know something. And if you know, then you are held accountable for that knowledge. Okay? And that's true of all of us. Now, the JST gives us, in my opinion, an even better rendition of all of this, where it says, Strive not for the mastery, knowing that in so doing we shall receive the greater condemnation. And with the mastery there, he's not talking about self-mastery. We should be striving for that all the time. He's talking about mastery over others. So when he says, do not be many masters, it's like, is that what you're trying to be? A master over many others? Are you looking to get ahead in the world? I mean, if you're being a respecter of persons and you always look up to the rich and look down at the poor, then no wonder you want to be like the rich yourself and master all those around you. 
That's not what we're aiming for as Christians. He says, for in many things we offend all. In other words, we all make many mistakes. We all stumble. We all offend other people in so many different areas of life. It's hard to live in community. Even we, we Christians here under the same roof in the same house church, we, we rub off each other's rough edges. We offend each other. And that's something we need to work on. Again, if, we're, if the rubber's hitting the road, if we're trying to find a pragmatic Christianity, then we've got to overcome that tendency to offend each other. The way he puts it at the, in verse 2, if any man offend not in word, ah, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. And imagine that. And this is a tall order. Not, don't offend anybody in the things you say. Well, if you can pull that off, oh, you're as, as mature as I can imagine. You are as grown up, as perfect as possible. Now, none of us are there yet. We've all got some growing up to do. But that's the, the eventual destination. That's the aim. I mean, think about it. If you can control your mouth, you can probably control most everything else. I mean, the way he describes it in verse 3, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. Think about that. The horse is so much stronger than its rider. But just by putting a little something, a little piece of metal in its mouth, you can rein it in. You can turn its head. You can control this whole animal by that small bit. Or another analogy. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, you thought horses were big. Let's, let's keep expanding. These ships that are so great and are driven of fierce winds, Yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. And that's the point. Who's the governor? Where does the governor want us to go? Are we acting or being acted upon? Are we being blown about by every wind of doctrine? Are we responding to the natural man or are we subjecting it to the will of the Spirit and the will of God? Are you on the horse? I actually remember in, when I was in Israel doing a study abroad in college, and we went to the Sinai Peninsula to hike Mount Sinai. But we had an extra day where we were just kind of hanging out on the beach by the Red Sea. It never parted for us, but we dreamed. And we kind of had the day to do whatever we wanted. Well, me and a few friends, we walked up to a neighboring uh, Egyptian village, and we found this father and son that had horses for rent. And I love horseback riding, but it's always been like those mountain trails where you're just bottom, 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 bottom. And I was so grateful when my horse had to stop to relieve itself because then it could at least trot to catch up to the rest of the group. I'd never galloped and I'd always dreamed to. And this seemed my chance. So we rented these horses. They were the most malnourished steeds I'd ever seen. I was like, I'm not sure if it's going to support my body weight. Maybe I should let it ride me instead of the other way around. But I, I saddled up and climbed on board and, and galloped down the shore of the Red Sea in the Sinai Peninsula. I was like Lawrence of Arabia. It was amazing. So thrilling. Until we started getting closer to the beach where all of my classmates and friends were hanging out. I'm like, okay, time to rein it in. And I pulled the horse's reins back 
and it lifted its head back and kept running full throttle straight forward. I didn't even know where it was running. I'm like, what the? I turned it to the side and it turned its head and kept running forward. I turned it, reined it on the other side and it turned its head and kept running forward. I'm like, uh, something's off with the alignment here. The steering doesn't work. There's no brake. This horse is out of control. Now, thankfully, it stopped before we trampled anyone to death. Uh, there were some death-defying experiences on my part where he almost closed, lined me by a, by a volleyball net and by a, a beach umbrella. But thankfully, I survived. The horse finally stopped. The little, the little boy, the little Arab boy said, you want to keep going? I'm like, no, 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 it, I'm good. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Shukran, shukran. Uh, and I got off and was lucky to live to tell the tale. Horses are supposed to be controllable by a little bit in the mouth. I just wonder sometimes if the Lord is putting the bit in our mouth, are we the untamed stallion that's running wild? Or do we honor the will of the governor? If we switch to the boat analogy, are we being blown about? Are we being acted upon? Or do we allow the Lord to take the rudder? Do we honor him as the captain of our salvation? I love what James is giving us here. There really does seem to be a beautiful analogy of just how a little thing can make such a huge difference. By small and simple things, great things are brought to pass. So control the horse. Control the, the ship with the bit, with the rudder. Is the Lord at your helm? And are you doing those small and simple things that will allow you to control everything about your Christian character and your Christian behavior. In verse 5, he goes on, speaking of little things, even so the tongue, we're back to that element. He mentioned it back at the beginning of this book. He's talking about it here in terms of, of a small thing. The tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Whew, I don't know what's going on in the Jerusalem church, but something has, has ruffled James's feathers. There's something going on among the people that he knows that there is so much friction among fellow saints, and friction causes heat, and heat ignites the fire. Something with their language, the way they talked to one another, things they said about each other behind one another's back, I don't know. But the, whatever is going on there in the, in the Jerusalem church, this is something that he wants to alert the whole Christian world about. And you've got to learn to control your tongue. If any of us are feeling a twinge of guilt right now, and I am one, have there been things I've said that I regret? Things that I thought better afterwards, like I shouldn't have said that, or at least I shouldn't have said it that way. Was there a kinder, gentler, more Christ-like approach to my communication? The way James says it in verse seven, for every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. In fact, go back to the Genesis account. 
Adam and Eve were given dominion over all those things. They were supposed to tame the rest of the animal kingdom. But, James says, the tongue, oh, forget about it. The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. After all, no man can serve two masters. That comes from the Sermon on the Mount also. But with our tongues, with our, with our mouths, with our words, which one are we serving? That's the irony. I guess in some ways we are serving both. But that's not how it's supposed to be. Choose your master. Pick your governor and hand them the reins or the helm. The thought that we can say such glowing things of God, keeping the first-rate commandment, speaking with the words of, with the tongue of men and of angels, but then not have charity for our neighbor, to break the second great commandment by talking behind people's backs, gossip and slander and backstabbing and Complaint, all those C's that they warned me about the day I was hired to teach as a seminary teacher. Don't complain, don't criticize, don't compare, and don't compete. That's been good advice. And for us to guard our tongues, even though they seem so untamable, it's poison, it's fire. Sometimes we say, oh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Really? Go ask a therapist about that. As they're working with people to overcome major damage done, forest fires within the psyche, poison poured into the mind, and that people are still being held hostage by words that were said unkindly from decades ago. As fellow saints, fellow Christians, we've got to be better in the words that we use for each other. James says in verse 11, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Think about what he's trying to describe here. Jesus, his older half-brother, had already taught in the Sermon on the Mount that by their fruits ye shall know them. That you can't gather figs of thorns or grapes of thistles. It doesn't work that way. And yet somehow you people on the same branch of your tree have the tree of life you want to give to God, but then some poisonous fruit to give your neighbor? In the same fountain, can I switch from sweet water to bitter? That's not how it works. So choose. How will you guide and guard your tongue? What kind of language will you use? Who is a wise man? James asks. And endued with knowledge, or endowed with knowledge among you. Let him show out of a good conversation, or good conduct, since conversation describes your, all of your actions. Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. For if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. Interesting things to consider for each of us. Are we wise enough to do good things with our knowledge? Are we meek enough to share our wisdom through good behavior? How are we treating each other? That speaks volumes about our Christian character. 
In verse 15, this wisdom descendeth not from heaven, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. In fact, it makes me wonder, should we have called it wisdom at all? I've been talking about wisdom since chapter 1, if any of you lack wisdom. But this kind of worldly wisdom that ranks different people and puts you above or below one another, this so-called wisdom that is a respecter of persons, oh, that's earthly, that's sensual, that's devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. No wonder President Nelson said that peacemakers are so desperately needed. We've got to overcome that envying and strife. We've got to put away the confusion and evil works. And once we do, what's left? If we've overcome the so-called wisdom of the devilish world, then what kind of wisdom can descend from above? How's this? The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. And actually, if you take those two together, there's another set of contraries to prove. Remember how Paul said you've got to speak the truth in love? Well, if you're speaking the truth, oh, then your word is pure. But if you're speaking it in love, then your word is peaceable. We have to balance those two. Keep going. Gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. He's bringing together a lot of the things he's already taught in the first half of his book, right? This idea of not being partial, of being an impartial judge, not treating the rich better than you would treat the poor. Or here, I love this idea of sowing things in peace, planting peace, knowing that by those fruits we shall know all things. That's what peacemakers do. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount yet again. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Uh, they're part of the family business, and the family business is to plant peace and let it grow. Now with that, shift to chapter 4. And there's not even a shift here. He's just continuing onward. More discussions of Christ-like behavior. Like I've said from the start this week, the rubber's hitting the road in the book of James. A practical wisdom, a Christ-like life. So verse 1, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Since that's what we were talking about at the end of chapter 3. It was your tongue that was creating these forest fires of harm. But where does that come from? We are seeing wars and fightings in Ukraine right now. We're seeing brutal wars and fightings in Israel and Gaza. Where does that come from? James's answer is fascinating. Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? And members here, remember Paul does this several times, that members can be body parts. So it's you and the different, this body part against that body part. But all of that also is symbolic of members of the body of Christ, as in church members. So are we fighting between each other? Well, that, of course, war and fighting is going to result from that. But also, are we fighting within ourselves? Is this natural man, spiritual man, at war with each other? And when I lose that war, then a new war begins on the outside. These are internal things leading to bigger, messier, more problematic external things. The way James says it, ye lust and have not. So what do you do? Ye kill 
I mean, after all, I want it and I don't have it, and you do. This is the Gedeons and robbers. These are secret combinations. This is murder and get gain. And that's the problem James is, is decrying here. Here's another one. Ye desire to have and cannot obtain. So what do you do? Ye fight and war. You see how the small things erupt into the big things? Something as simple as greed or lust turns into something as big as murder or warfare. He says, yet ye have not because ye ask not. No wonder you're trying to steal from others. You won't ask God to, for him to give you what you really need. Then again, what if you do ask God? Well, read the next line. Ye ask and receive not. And why? Didn't he say he'd give liberally and not upbraid? Well, remember the catch? You have to ask in faith. Well, in this case, there's a catch here as well. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. What James is describing here is the fact that we're doing it all wrong. We're pursuing wrong goals in wrong ways, external problems growing out of internal problems, everything driven by selfishness, me first. Nothing will destroy Zion more than selfishness. Because instead of one heart and one mind, we each are holding to our own wicked hearts and selfish minds. Instead of dwelling together in righteousness, we are splitting apart in selfish wickedness. And no poor among them? Oh, no, we're not meeting anyone else's needs. I want everything for myself. In some ways, the Babylon that the world is building right now is the direct antithesis of the Zion that God has in mind. The Zion that James is giving us counsel to construct. He says in verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. And what's interesting there is the Greek word isn't repeated. He doesn't say adulterers and adulteresses. He just uses one word to describe the whole group. And ironically, when, when usually you use the masculine plural to describe men and women, here he uses the feminine plural. So literally he's writing, you adulteresses. That's it. Now he's not singling out the sisters. He's drawing upon Old Testament symbolism. And you remember how often in the Old Testament we saw Israel depicted as Jehovah's wife, but an unfaithful one. This is like Gomer, Hosea's unfaithful wife. And so here's James, Jacob, if we want to go with his Hebrew name, speaking out to those adulteresses, namely the house of Israel that has been covenantly unfaithful to Jesus Christ. Okay, so you adulteresses, do I have your attention? Here's the message. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Think about it. You're going to have to choose one master or the other. If you're a friend of the world, it's like, who's your mother? If you're picking the world as your mother, she's married to the adversary. So she's not married to Christ. If you want to be with Christ, you have to choose his spouse. And he, he married the church. So who are you friendly with? And that'll determine who is your enemy. Okay? Friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. After all, do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now, that's a really confusing passage, and scholars are all over the map in trying to make sense of it. 
After all, he said, do you think that the scripture saith in vain? But nobody can figure out exactly what scripture he's quoting. It might be one that's been lost from manuscript history. It might be a combination or compilation of a bunch of different scriptural ideas. That's, that's very likely. But we can't point to a single chapter and verse that says, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. As a result, we don't know the context of that phrase. And so people who translate it are still kind of grasping at straws. Like, what exactly does he mean? Some people suggest that it's this idea of the spirit within us it lusteth to the end. It's pulling us in wrong directions. It's the natural man. Okay, that's the issue. And what, are you going to deny that? Do you think that the scripture says that in vain? Oh, no. It, it gave us the gospel truth. We are made of selfish stuff. So we're going to have to bridle those passions so we can be filled with love. We're going to have to rein in the horse or we're going to end up trampling each other. We've got to recognize what we're up against. We've seen the enemy and it is us. I have to overcome the natural man. I have to bridle my tongue. I have to look at my brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters and treat them in kind and Christ-like ways. Oh yeah, there's scripture all over the place that tells us that. James then says, and I love the next line because in some ways after the confusion of that passage, can I at least make something crystal clear? He says, but he, God, giveth more grace. More than we had when we were fighting against him or fighting against each other. No, he continues to work with us and work on us and work through us. He continues to polish those rough edges. He continues to give us more and more grace so that we can be gracious to each other. Wherefore he saith, and this time we do have a chapter and verse. He's quoting from the book of Proverbs which is appropriate since he's basically writing his own book of Proverbs. Here he quotes Proverbs 3.34, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. That's really what it boils down to. Are we going to choose humility or pride? If we choose humility, then God promises us his grace. He knows what we'll do with it. And if we choose pride, then God will resist us, which makes sense since our pride is resisting him. There really are two halves of the pride cycle. A half that belongs to God and a half that belongs to the devil. On the devil's side, we are proud and end up being destroyed. On the Lord's side, we are humble and end up being blessed. And actually what's interesting is what moves us back and forth or around the cycle is a combination of choice and consequence. I get to choose if I'll respond to my situation with humility or pride. And a consequence naturally grows out of that choice. If I choose humility, then the consequence is prosperity. But if I choose pride, then the consequence is destruction. And it goes around and around based on a choice with its consequence, and then the opposite choice and its consequence, and then the opposite choice and is, and on and on and on. When will we finally decide to stay on the Lord's side of the pride cycle? We really can beat the system. We can beat the cycle if instead of choosing pride when life gets good, we continue to choose humility. That is one of the practical pieces of advice James is giving to us all. He has a lot more where that came from. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
That's the humility he's been talking about. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And again, practical wisdom, I love that one. That would fit in well in the book of Proverbs. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Think about it this way. Temptation, as we all sadly know, is incredibly repetitive. And Satan just keeps coming after us over and over and over, often with the same old sin. I mean, of course, why not? The bait works and we keep getting hungry. Put those two together and voila, you've got temptation, which gives, conceives and brings forth sin and then let the sin grow up and you've just turned into the grim reaper. You've brought forth death, right? All that he said earlier. But what's interesting here is despite temptation's repetitive nature, it doesn't seem to be very persistent. That is, I mean, Satan keeps after you. Try it. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, right? But in terms of its longevity, in terms of its staying power, temptation isn't very sustained. Think about that. And again, it's based on what James just told us. If we resist the devil, he comes at us with a temptation and we say no. We switch our hunger and satisfy it in more meaningful ways. Or we just have discipline. We've learned to control the helm of the ship or the bit and bridle of the horse. And even though Bates right here, I am going to resist it. Now, if I resist the devil, what does James say the devil will do? He will flee from me. Really? Now, that's not to say it's a permanent flight. Even in Christ's experience in Matthew 4, the Mount of Temptation, Jesus resisted and the devil fled. But then the devil came back to try again. It's that, like I said, he, it's repetitive. He keeps on, he doesn't give up easy. But then again, he doesn't last long either. Now, do you understand the difference I'm trying to make? Uh, in other words, the devil specializes in sprints, not in marathons. Because the marathon requires endurance and you just continue with it and persist and keep trying. And those are, those are attributes the devil never quite developed. He wants the quick fix, the easy victory. In World War II, what the German army specialized in was what they called Blitzkrieg, which means lightning war. And the plan was to, as quickly as possible, invade Poland and then defeat them before they can even rally the troops and fight back. And then it's done. And then we'll go blitzkrieg something else and take that. And it's just really quick dominoes falling, a really fast victories. Whereas a sustained, long-term slog, where we just have to maintain troop morale and convince people it's worth a continuing fight. That they couldn't handle. And the interesting thing here on the devil's part is if he can't get a quick victory, he retreats. In order to regroup and plan again and try at some later point, but you beat him and you can rest a little easier for a while. I would hope that the next time we, that, that hunger and bait meet, the next time we feel this uh, temptation begin to work within us, that we remember that it's not a, it's not an, an eternal fight I have to wage right now. That thought can be so daunting that I'm going to be resisting this. I'm going to have to resist this temptation for the rest of my life. 
If I give in, won't it just go away for a little while? Well, sadly, that's kind of true too. Satan got his quick victory and then he'll rest a while and then come back to get another quick victory later on. But to flip it around and go, how about a quick defeat? If I can just resist for a little while, the wave is coming, but the wave will crash. The hunger, the stomach has growled, but it will settle back down. Think about Fast Sunday. Isn't that how it works? You're not fixated on your, fa on your famished stomach all day long. It comes and goes. And the stomach growls and you're like, oh, I wish I could have that. No, forget it. I'm going to resist. And then you go elsewhere and do something different and you forget about it for a while. You understand? The, the hope that I think James is trying to give us all is that if we'll just resist temptation for a little while, when it first appears, it will go away. And in fact, if we'll do that often enough, eventually will the devil change his tactics or perhaps just change a temptation because he's tired of being defeated time and time again. I love that verse. Resist the, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Remember that next time temptation comes. Also remember this, verse 8. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Doesn't that sound like a reciprocal relationship? And that's what covenants are, right? I mean, he's wanting and waiting to see you, but he wants to see if we'll turn to him first. Turning is that repentance. Think about the father of the prodigal son, for example. He couldn't follow the boy all the way off to that far country. But as soon as the boy came to himself and began the journey back, he didn't have to come the whole way back before the father went out and met him in the middle. Draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. Next line. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded those double-minded men that are unstable in all their ways, right? The ones that are wavering to and forth, the ones that are paralyzed and can't do anything. Well, what do you do? Purify your hearts and you'll be worthy of the Spirit's direction so you know which decision to make. There's actually something beautiful here, not to the Proverbs, but to the Psalms. Because remember that one, I think it's the 24th Psalm, where he invites us to have clean hands and a pure heart. Same thing here. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts heart. Elder Oaks has actually taught about this, that clean hands is your actions, pure hearts is your intent. So it's not just what you're doing, but it's the motivation behind those deeds. And both of them need to be clean and pure. He then says, be afflicted, or grieve is a better way to say that. We're not out there looking for affliction. You know what I need today? I need to be afflicted. No, when you are afflicted though, since it's going to happen, it's going to come. Don't be shocked by that. Back to chapter one, right? It's going to teach you patience and that's a good thing. So when you're afflicted, fine, grieve and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. And that's an interesting piece of advice. We're supposed to allow ourselves to feel those emotions? Oh, but they're negative emotions, aren't they? What about men are that they might have joy? Well, yeah, but there's opposition in all things. And if you really want to be able to feel joy, you ought to let yourself feel sorrow. Emotions aren't bad in and of themselves. They're trying to tell us something, teach us something. And sorrow has quite the lesson to give. 
So allow, allow sorrow to teach. Mourn and weep. There will be joy in the morning. Or as he says in the next verse, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Maybe that's what he means by the grief and the mourning and the weeping. It's, it's meant to humble you. And how's that for the pride cycle? In a good way, if I choose humility, then the natural consequence is the Lord lifting me up. Now it's, me. Now it's my turn to choose to stay there. Keep going in verse 11. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. So who art thou that judgest another? Now, both of those verses, 11 and 12, when he's talking about that, interesting, especially if he's writing to a Jewish Christian audience, that are still holding somewhat to the old law of Moses. Now, if I'm still critiquing all my neighbors and I'm watching them and making them an offender for a word or, or seeing if they're going to fall to any possible temptation, then it's like, ah, oh, gotcha. I watched. You, you sinned against the law. And one of the things James is doing here is, can you stop that? Can you stop speaking evil of each other? Uh, because if you speak evil, guess what? You're breaking a law too which says to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm, yeah. So while you're being so careful to watch everyone else break laws, in the very act, you're breaking one yourself. So back to your old legalism. Yeah, you might want to keep that part of the law yourself before jumping. I mean, this is Jesus and the woman taken in adultery. And fine, if you're without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And here's James leaving them with a similar feeling like, ooh, yikes, yeah, that's, I'm in no place to do that. Or like he says at the end there, there is already a lawgiver and already a judge, and it ain't you, okay? All this time that you're spending judging other people for breaking the law is time you could actually be doing better things to live the higher law yourself. So let's just do that. In verse 13, go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. That's their plan. That's what they're saying. And James is speaking to those, oh, investors, the ones that are planning to go find some new real estate venture and let's buy some stuff, let's sell some stuff, let's, whatever we do, let's get ahead, shall we? I mean, we all look up to the rich, don't we? I want to be that one with the gold and with the ring and with the robe that everybody looks up to when I step into church. So I got to get ahead. Well, careful. Next sentence. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor. It's like you go up in smoke that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. This is like what he said in the beginning of his book about flowers falling and grass drying up in the sun, things fading away, how fleeting earthly wealth is. And so you investors, this actually is as close to his older half-brother's parable of the rich fool as anything I've seen. Because this sounds like the rich fool. There's actually a whole, a whole group of foolish rich men or would-be rich men, as they're planning these investments, not knowing you're probably not even going to be around by the time your investments mature. 
strike it rich. Maybe that's why it's always a get rich quick scheme, because I want to be here for it. Whereas James's caution, you don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow. Soul, the, 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 the rich fool said, what should I do with all this amazing stuff that I'm going to lay up in store for myself? I should probably tear down my barns and build greater ones. It's the American dream. Early retirement. Spend the rest of my life spending my money on myself. Oh, thou fool. Know thou not that this night thy life shall be, shall be judged. This is it. James is saying the same thing. And then he says in verse 15, For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. I laugh at that because if the Lord will is what I heard a million times a day on my mission when I'd invite a sweet Puerto Rican person to come to church or to read the Book of Mormon or any kind of commitment, they'd always say, if the Lord will. Or in Spanish, si Dios quiere. In Arabic, they do the same thing. It's inshallah. And it's just God willing. And that's what he wants. Now, most of the time I heard that, it was more of a cop-out. Like, oh, I don't know, I don't really feel like coming to church, but hey, if God wills, then I guess I'll be there. And we'd always laugh and go, oh, si, sí, el quiere, he wants you to. Here, it's the more honest version, though. It's the, re the true submission to the will of God. This is what I'm going to say within myself. If the Lord will, I'll live. If not, then I'll die. I'm okay either way. I'm laying up my treasures in heaven, not on earth anyway, so it's fine. If he wants me to do this, I'll do it. If he wants me to do that, I'll do that instead. Okay? That's the right kind. How about this for the wrong kind? But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. And then he expands to give us a powerful principle. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And I emphasized to him for a reason. We are all going to be judged individually. And not by each other, because we already have a lawgiver and judge in heaven. Okay? We'll honor his verdict. He's the perfect judge. But what does he know about us? He knows our past as well as our present. He knows our knowledge as well as our ignorance. He knows whatever level of accountability we've reached. And therefore, he will judge us based on that level of accountability. It, powerful the way he puts it. And especially the fact that he's dealing in sins of omission here. Sins of commission, it follows the same pattern. If I know I shouldn't do something and I do it, then yes, to me that's sin. Otherwise, I'd be sinning in ignorance and where there is no knowledge, there's no accountability. Okay, But in terms of sins of omission, that's a fascinating one too. If I know I should be helping someone, it goes back to that, I felt the joy of a prompting. Great, go feel the joy of actually acting on it. You'll be amazed. Okay, So if you know you should be doing something, doing good that is, please do it. Otherwise, that's a sin on you. And it's personal. I don't have to judge other people because maybe they don't know better. Maybe God hasn't inspired them to do such and such a thing or called them into a particular action. My mom told me that when I was a little boy, we were having family night, probably me and my older sister. I was maybe two and she was four. 
uh, something along those lines. This is too early for me to even remember, but my mom has reminded me of it. She was teaching about forgiveness and mentioned the verse in the Doctrine and Covenants that if you don't forgive when someone repents, then you're guilty of a worse sin. You're withholding the atonement, right? Uh, made perfect sense to my sister, at least. Because she said, according to mom's story, my sister wheeled, right, you know, turned to me and said, Jared always does that. He never forgives me. When I hurt his feelings and I say I'm sorry, he doesn't forgive me. So he's worse than me, huh, mom? And my mom said, I just burst into tears instantly. And through my tears and my sobbings and my weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, I said, but I didn't know. I didn't know. And my mom realized, you're right. You didn't know. This is the first time I've taught this particular family home evening lesson. So, you, Jared, you sinned in ignorance. Kristen, cut him some slack. And... Jared, now you know. So if you do it again, mm, you're not quite off the hook. In fact, my mom said, I felt so guilty realizing I hadn't taught you that. And this burst of emotion, this broken heart and contrite spirit that you felt right then was more my fault than yours because I hadn't prepared you to understand and live that commandment. So she said, I made it a point to make sure you guys would always know what you should be doing. And she did an amazing job of that. Okay. Uh, if I, and there's no chance for me to cry to my mom and say, I didn't know, because thanks to her, I do. Okay. Now, one more chapter. And in this final chapter, James is going to give us his grand finale of rubber hitting road, of practical application of the gospel of his older half-brother. How do I live Christ's teachings. Thank you for all your theologizing, Paul. But we got to do something about it. So, James, what practical wisdom do you have for me? Verse 1, go to now ye rich men. He keeps bringing them in. There must really have been some stratified society among the church that he's talking about. Go to now ye rich men and weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Yikes. Miseries, aren't those, isn't wealth something that can protect you from all of that? Can't I buy my way out of problems? It often seems that way. But if that's what you're using as protection, it's going to go up in smoke like everything else. It's going to vanish away. It's going to fade. The way he puts it is strong language. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Yikes. That's much stronger language than anything we saw Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount, though Jesus dropped similar hints about moth and rust corrupting. James is intensifying his brother's words. Or verse 4, Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields. So they're your fields, but you've got these laborers that are working them. This is management versus labor force. And if you're hiring them, then aren't you supposed to give them their penny appointed at the end of the day? Well, are you? The way he puts it here, you've hired laborers to reap down the fields. They've done that. But speaking of payment which is of you kept back by fraud. 
Ooh, so you're not paying your employees. You are exploiting your workers. No wonder you become the 1%. You're living at the expense of the 99%. But guess what? The cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And Sabaoth is not a mispronunciation of Sabbath. We saw this repeatedly in the Old Testament. It means Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. Again, James is intensifying his language and painting a picture of judgment. How are you treating those around you? He says, ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton, or self-indulgent, we would say. Ye have nourished your hearts. But then this fascinating metaphor. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Now, what did he mean by nourishing his heart as in a day of slaughter? Well, think about what rich people do to celebrate. Well, you're going to slaughter the fatted calf, right? And then eat as much of it as you possibly can with your rich friends. While the people who raised that calf or grew the food that fed it and fattened it, they're out living on the husks that the swine do eat because you're not paying them. I mean, economically, this is strong stuff. And he is decrying the exploitation of the poor by the rich that must have been happening in his day. It's still happening in ours. But to use this analogy of the fatted calf, what's he saying? You've nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Oh, you aren't eating the fatted calf now. You are the fatted calf now. Talk about enforced empathy, like we saw so often in the Old Testament. Let's do a little role reversal, shall we? And have you feel what it feels like to be preyed upon. I mean, after all, you have gotten rich and waxed fat. And now that you've lived so high on the hog, let's make you the hog. You are now the fatted calf, and let's use you to feed everyone else. Maybe, in fact, since we're role reversing, it's the poor that can feast on you for a change. This is the same James that earlier was talking about the fatherless and the widow. And what is pure religion and undefiled? Oh, I think even during the years where he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, he knew that Jesus cared for the poor and the needy. And that was a lesson we all need to learn. He then says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Oh, he's putting all this in a second coming context, just like Paul so frequently did. And so keep in mind, not only how we're supposed to live the gospel, but when we are doing that gospel living, in the shadow or the foreshadow of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, you're going to have to be patient. We don't know when it is. Paul told us that there's got to be a falling away first, right? There's some other things that have to be done, but be patient until then. And speaking of patience, behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Sometimes it's got to rain in the spring and again rain in the fall. And some of these are slow growth crops. Please be patient. 
actually wonder, is he talking about us being patient for the coming of the Lord? Or is he talking about the Lord being patient that we'll actually be prepared for it? Either way, there's some waiting going on, okay, before the coming of Christ. He goes on, Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, or don't grumble against each other. That's that, that tongue that's starting forest fires all over again. No, don't do that. Lest ye be condemned, behold, the judge standeth before the door. And again, there's second coming context. That great judge that will outjudge us all is right outside. I stand at the, I stand at the door and knock. Blessed are those who can open immediately and let me in. Well, if the judge is right outside the door, I hope we're not grumbling against each other. I hope we're not exploiting one another and causing friction because he could, the walls are thin. Uh, maybe he can hear all that right through the door. Maybe actually that's why he's waiting. Have you ever done that? I remember some really awkward times where I was about to knock on somebody's door and I could like hear like fighting going on inside. Like, yeah, probably not the right time. I still have to come and visit or I need to get in this house, but I'm going to let this subside and then wait long enough so that they don't know I'm out here overhearing all of this. Is that part of the reason the Lord is patient in his coming? So we have time to clean things up a bit. Well, we better take advantage of that opportunity. In verse 10, he says, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction. And of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. And that brings us back to what he, the way he started this whole letter, right? Be grateful for those diverse afflictions. It's what develops patience in all of us. And patience has to have its perfect work. So look back at the prophets and think about how many of them are examples of exactly that kind of patience in affliction. They were happy. They endured. He says, ye have heard of the patience of Job. And that's the best example I think anybody could think of. And you have heard of that. You have seen the end of the Lord. You know the end of the story, all those blessings that came his way. That the Lord is very pitiful, or we would say full of pity. Okay, He cares about people. He feels for them. Compassion, empathy, love. He is very pitiful and of tender mercy. What's great about this, again, practical living, is live the gospel. And don't just do it during easy times. In some ways, how we behave under duress is the, is the best example of who we really are. I don't know, well, if I had a dollar for every time, and this would make me a rich man, I've got to be careful with that, right? But if I had a dollar for every time I excused my frustration or impatience or saying something that I regret, if I had a dollar for every time I excused those forest fires by saying, I'm sorry, honey, I'm, I'm just really stressed, or I'm really tired, or there's just a lot on my mind, or I'm hangry, or whatever it might be, it's like, okay, fine, but if you can only be good when life is good, are we back to publicanism? You understand what I'm trying to say here, or what James is trying to say here? No matter what's going on, affliction, persecution, distress, follow the prophet's examples. 
who were able to not only endure, but endure things well. In verse 12, he says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Again, that's straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Let your word be your bond. Honesty, integrity. You shouldn't have to swear things and put, sign on all these dotted lines and put it in triplicate and have it notarized. And If you said yay, then yay. If you said nay, then leave it at nay. And be the type of person that people can fully trust. Your word is your bond. Or in verse 13, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Again, we're honoring emotions here. Before, if you were struggling, then fine, grieve and mourn. That's, that's an important part of, of being able to process the difficult things you've been through. Similarly here, if you're struggling, pray for help. If you're rejoicing, then go ahead and rejoice. Sing psalms. Church should, it should be home to all of those emotions. The scriptures are full of all of those emotions. You have psalms of praise. You have psalms of lamentation. You have stories of joy. You have stories of sorrow. All of those are part of the human experience, and God not only honors them all, but through the condescension of Christ, he embraced them all. Or this next example, is any sick among you? That's part of the normal human experience as well. Well, if you are sick, then let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I love that he puts physical and spiritual healing side by side. But notice the way he described it. I think there's something here that I want us to wrestle with for a moment, uh, especially God's daughters right alongside God's sons. Okay, Because according to this verse, what do you do when you're sick and you want to be healed? You have faith to be healed. Well, you send for the elders of the church. Those elders, and that is a male priesthood office. In the New Testament, we've seen both deacons and deaconesses. We see priests and priestesses, but the elders of the church here is a male priesthood office, and they're the ones that are supposed to come and anoint the head with oil in the name of the Lord. And that's what we do in the modern church. I was in an airport security line at one point and pulled my keys out of my pocket and put it in the little dish, and I went through, and the officer, whoever it was, picked it up and was like, what is this thing? And he pointed to the, my oil, my vial of consecrated oil. And so I was like, well, it's... It's consecrated oil. And he's like, what? You, like it's, all, it's a little container of olive oil. And he's probably thinking, like, what are you, some kind of an Italian chef? What, what the heck is this for? And I'm like, oh, it's, do you, are you a Bible-believing person? Because <laughs> in the book of James, chapter 5, it talks about the elders of the church anointing with oil for the healing of the sick. And I'm an elder of my church. And they're like, oh, well, yeah. well they eventually let me through security with my vial of oil intact. But what's interesting about this is in the earliest days of the restored church, in the Relief Society in Nauvoo, for example, there would be meetings where the women would give each other blessings of healing. 
Often it was uh, in conjunction with childbirth, and women would lay hands upon other women and bless them. The, and healings occurred. Some men were pushing back, like, I don't know if the sisters, the sisters should be able to do this. And other men were like, well, the fact that they are healing each other suggests that God's okay with it, since he's honoring the administration, <laughs> right? This is like Peter saying, well, God obviously has a sweet spot in his heart for Gentiles, because he keeps giving them the Holy Ghost just like us. No difference between Jew and Gentile. Here, no difference between male and female. Well, why the difference now? Now, there's a history behind it, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but in our day, in the current church, the, the blessing of the sick is done in this way, and it's done by God's sons, those that, are, that have the Melchizedek priesthood, okay, and an office within, the elders of the church. But pause for a moment. I think I might have mentioned this earlier when we were studying... 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 is the great chapter on gifts of the Spirit, among which is listed the gift of healing. Now, healing as a spiritual gift is non-gender specific because the spiritual gifts are non-gender specific. God can give them to his daughters as well as to his sons. And so for a sister to have the gift of healing, that's beautiful. Now, in some ways, which scriptural precedent are we going to call to the stand? And if we're going to base everything on 1 Corinthians 12, then both men and women can give blessings of healing. These are not priesthood ordinances, right? These are blessings. With the power of God, that is priesthood, but not an office in the priesthood being required. Okay? That's the 1 Corinthians 12 model. And that's the model that the church lived in Nauvoo. The James 5 model is more gender-specific. At least that line about calling for the elders male of the church to anoint with oil and heal the sick, okay? And for whatever reason, in our current day, we are following a James 5 model instead of a 1 Corinthians 12 model. Could it ever revert back? Certainly. I'll leave that for prophets and apostles to decide, okay? But we have scriptural precedent and historical precedent for both. Be aware of that. But also be aware of this, that right after the verse that we always quote to describe priesthood blessings, is a verse that also describes perhaps an additional means whereby we can exercise the gift of healing in one another's lives. And this one's non-gender specific. Go back to the text. The first verse talks of the elders coming. The very next verse, we're talking side by side here, speaks of the prayer of faith saving the sick so that the Lord can raise them up. Now the prayer of faith are both men and women allowed to pray? Yeah. Are both women and men allowed to have faith? Oh yeah, encouraged to. And honestly, in my own marriage, within my parents, among so many couples that I know, a mother's faith is not one whit behind a father's blessing. To you wonderful sisters out there, I hope you can hold to that second verse here. And when your children are struggling or suffering, by all means, if there is an elder of the church that can come and anoint the head with oil, do it. But whether in addition to that or in its place, when that's not possible, do not think of your prayer of faith as some kind of second class priesthood power. 
It isn't. Hold to that and pray in faith. You'll be amazed at the miracles that can come. In fact, the way he says it in verse 16, which I love, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. And that seems to be more of the spiritual healing he ended verse 15 with. But then this magnificent promise that applies across the board. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. And here man, we could say man or woman, because effectiveness isn't gender specific. Fervency isn't gender specific. Prayer isn't gender specific. Righteousness isn't gender specific. So the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous son or daughter of God availeth much. Oh, please, my friends, may we trust the efficacy of prayer. Can we add our faith to the stockpile? Often, when I know that people are praying for me, this verse comes to mind. And I just look at these friends or family members, male, female, anyone, and thank them that their effectual, fervent prayers will avail me much. Because I know their righteousness. I know their goodness. I know the selfless desires of their heart. I pray that I can be one of those whose fervent prayers are effectual and availing whenever somebody is in need. Think back to the story I told when we studied the daughter of Jairus. And this sense on the Lord's part of there must be only faith in this room no doubt. And so those who are laughing me to scorn downstairs, you stay out. But mom and dad, I know you have faith. Peter, James, and John, you better have faith. Come with me and add your faith to the stockpile because I'm about to make the impossible possible. I'm about to raise the dead. I, that story came to my mind with the Spirit's help when I was trying to explain to an angry old woman why she couldn't go to her granddaughter's temple ceiling as a non-member of the church. For her, all she thought was, I, I love my granddaughter, why can't I come? And up to that moment, I'd always thought, well, what gets you into the temple is worthiness. And so you can't come to the temple. Wait a minute, it's not because you're not worthy. You're a sweet little old lady. I'm sure you're worthy to go to the temple. Maybe it's not just about worthiness. And that's when that, the Spirit put that story in my head and I realized, it's about faith. That's what it is. The gathering multitudes that mourned over the death of Jairus' daughter were worthy to be there. They just didn't have faith that her death could be overcome with new life. And so as I explained that to her and said, when I go to the, a temple ceiling, it's not as a spectator. It is to add my faith to the stockpile because I believe. I believe with all my heart that what is being bound on earth is being bound in heaven. And that this temple sealer has the authority to stiff arm the grim reaper himself and say, you're not allowed to break up this couple. I refuse to say the words, till death do you part. I don't have to. And when I asked this sweet old lady, do you believe that that kind of priesthood authority has been restored to the earth through the ministry of angels to Joseph Smith the prophet? And she uh, no, no offense, I don't believe that. Wonderful. I don't blame you, but I do. And it is faith that is required within the temple 
That's not where we go to party and celebrate the wedding. That's the reception. And you better be there, Grandma. <laughs> okay? By the end of the discussion, she realized, it's okay, it makes sense why I'm not in the temple. I'm no longer offended by that. I don't have the kind of faith that would be required to perform the kind of miracle you're describing that takes place there. Well, take it all, that concept, right back to James 5. And the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much. Bring your faith and enable miracles thereby. An interesting example of that, he mentions in verse 17, Elias, which is the Greek form of Elijah. So go back to that amazing well, wild man up back in the pages of the Old Testament. And here's Elijah, who's described as a man subject to like passions as we are. And that's interesting. James is saying, hey, Elijah was just like us. He had his issues. He had his strengths and his weaknesses. And yeah, they're all played out on the pages of the Old Testament. We met him in all his glory and all his roughness last year. But notice this. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly. How's that for an effectual, fervent prayer? He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And sure enough, it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. How's that for an answered prayer? And then he reversed it. He prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. I love what James is reassuring us with. Elijah was far from perfect. But you know what? He trusted the power of prayer. And God honored that. So the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man, well, again, it's not the flawless man or woman. But you're doing the best you can, and you're trusting in God to do what you can't do. Oh, that availeth much. Just ask Elijah. And then James ends this brief little letter. Intended for everyone, universal, general. He says in verse 19 and 20, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and that's going to be all of us because we're imperfect. That's all right. Elijah had his own issues as well. But if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, and I pray that's happening constantly. Instead of judge each other, help each other. Instead of pushing each other down, lift each other up. Forget comparison and competition and criticism and complaint. Let's go with conversion. How's that for the big C? One, convert him. That's what we're praying for. Then let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now, before you jump to conclusions with that last phrase, he'll hide a multitude of sins. Wait a minute. Is that talking about me if I go out and convert a sinner? Oh, as a missionary, we'd jump at that chance. So do my sins get automatically, do I get automatic amnesty by sharing the gospel and converting someone to the church? Oh, sign me up for another mission. Don't, I, I would be hesitant to jump to that conclusion. In fact, Peter, we'll see him next week. Peter will make a similar promise or make, use a similar phrase, I should say, in his letter when he says that charity covereth a multitude of sins. It's like, hey, so if I'm loving, then I get all my sins forgiven too? Is that how it works? Well, there's a JST there. Brace yourself. Or at least slow down a bit. 
And the JST of that passage, instead of charity covering a multitude of sins, it says charity preventeth a multitude of sins. And that, to me, seems a little bit more doctrinally sound. That it's not automatic amnesty just because I showed some love. But the more loving I am, it prevents me sinning against another person. Perhaps it prevents them from sinning against me or against others. Charity is a great preventative of other problems. And so is converting souls from sin to righteousness, from death to life. I'm preventing further problems for them and for me. And that is cause to rejoice together. I did find that as I taught the gospel as a missionary, or as a seminary teacher, or an institute teacher, or a BYU professor, or as a Sunday school teacher, or primary teacher, or best of all, parent, by striving with all my heart, might, mind, and strength to convert people who have erred, just gently show them the error of their ways. Preach repentance, but do it kindly, gently, both purely and peaceably, as we saw before. It is amazing how much sin prevention that provides for both parties. And in some ways, that's a fitting end. Because what more can we do? Here we are, whether in the Jerusalem church or some far-flung house church across the Roman Empire, having read and pondered the theology of Paul, but wrestling how to put that into practical terms and getting this godsend of a letter from James telling us how the rubber hits the road. I love this little book. There are so many little gems where he's teaching us how to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for the wisdom he's provided. It's right there for the asking. I've, I'm grateful for the ways he has taught me to manifest my faith through good works. I know those works won't save me, but they will show my faith in him in whom I trust. Because not only do I believe in him, but I'm trying as diligently as possible to follow his perfect example. To be hearing from Jesus' own half-brother, who somehow at some time came to a knowledge of the truth of who Jesus had always been. I pray that will happen for us. And I pray it effectually, and I pray it fervently. Praying that it will avail much in your life. I am grateful for these words. I testify they are true. And pray that we may not only know them, but do them.